Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. People are complicated. I meet a lot of complicated people. My guest today is Cecil Bothwell. Cecil and I met backstage during the debut performance of Maintaining an Election, a politically driven variety show in Asheville. Cecil provided wisdom and information. I provided a few laughs. After listening to him speak, I knew immediately I wanted to have him on the podcast. There are some to whom success comes easy. Others excel at failure. Cecil is a master of both. Learning to Fail is diving deeper into double digits and the number of subscribers is growing. Thank you so much for spreading the word. Please keep tuning in weekly and help us to reach even more people by telling them. My gratitude goes out to those who've rated and reviewed our podcast on iTunes. I cannot thank you enough for your kind words. If you haven't already done so, please take a moment to let others know how you feel about what you hear. It really helps. Make sure you check out our website, ltfpod.com, and visit our Amazon page every time you buy anything online. By clicking on our link before you shop, you can support the podcast without spending a nickel of your own money. You can also drop a dime on our donation page. Every little bit helps. As always, the most important thing you can do is simply to listen to the podcast and inspire others to do the same. We encourage you to try learning to fail at home, with or without adult supervision. Speaking of adults who should be supervising me, let's get into my conversation with Cecil. The world desperately needs the wisdom and guidance of people like him. I recall years ago when I was doing a radio spot for... uh... I did a weekly thing for WNCW back in the 90s, and uh, and they were about to change their computer system, and I was pushing, pushing, pushing to get them to go to Max. Uh, I said, you'll, you'll love it in the long term, but they were going for the, the cheap. Um, and I looked into it, and PC Magazine was published on Max. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That is like... <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, it is. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's great. <laughs> right, 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 right. But yeah. I just mean, like, it's just so classic. And NPR's used Max since the 90s, anyway. Yeah. Is PC Magazine related to NPR? No, no, no. But no, it, was, just... it was another thing I looked... Well, you know, uh, WNCW is related to you know, NPR. Oh, right, right, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right. I, I kept yeah. made the argument, but they didn't listen. Eh, whatever. Yeah. No, you can't, uh, you can't convince everybody. No, no, you can't. So I want to say how nice it was to finally meet you the other night. Yeah, doing well, thank this you. Thing. I, yeah, well, because I I've, I've, I've known who you were, but mm-hmm. I mean I couldn't have picked you out of a lineup. I mean, of course I, not. I yeah. only knew you from emails and right. and your provocative stance on everything. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and but you know I remember like when I first kind of knew who you were by you know getting your emails and stuff. Like, right. um, honestly, it just felt like you were so far. You were you you were angry about all of it, and which is understandable because there's a lot to be unhappy about. But uh, it just after hearing you talk the other night, and that's why I wanted to have you on. Is like you really struck me as one of the most reasonable and progressive people I've ever listened to, and it was 
unbelievably refreshing for me. Well, thank you. I um, sometimes between the media coverage and the necessity of being brief, we can we we can get sort of a distorted picture of people, and, and not just me, but I'm you know sure yeah. I mean, like I'm to the Citizen Times, I seem to be Mister No. That's the you know and. And that's not exactly where I come from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I mean, it's yeah. yeah. I I don't experience you that way at all. Right. Uh, well, thanks. At I, the time, I just you know you every every email was like this has got to change and this is awful and you were running for office and yeah. and and I can only imagine how challenging that must have been. But you did ultimately get elected, right? I mean, yeah. Oh nine, I was elected. Well, oh eight, I ran for county commission and um, and I decided at the last minute to do that. And I came in 0.08% behind a 20-year incumbent. And I gave up gave up politics forever. And uh, that summer, a friend of mine who's really wonky said, you know, Cecil, he said, you lost out in the county, but you won in the city by a lot. Why don't you run for city council? And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. But about a year later, I ran for council and, and won a seat in 09 and then uh, reelected in 20, 2013. And in, in between, in 2012, I was so fed up with Heath Schuler, who was our blue dog dem, that I, and no one would, would primary him, that I ran in the primary against him, and he dropped out in the middle of the primary, and, I, and then they redistricted in the middle of the primary. Uh, so they cut a lot of Asheville out of the 11th, and I won in Buncombe in that primary, um, but in Buncombe, but not in the rest of the the district, and now we have Mark Meadows. And uh, I mean, to be really clear, I'm so glad I'm not in Washington. I mean, you know, it's it's not sour grapes. I mean, I, it would be to be in the minority in this in this thing in mess up there. Yeah, would not be a fun experience. So I, I really like being on city council. I'm, I feel like I'm having some effect locally well i think you know that was one of the things i learned i shot a commercial for holly jones is that right and it was a long time ago it was 2000 i think it was 2008 or 2009 and yeah i I was friends with um veronica gunther Yeah. yeah and veronica hooked me up with this gig she said hey we need a video done it's not a big budget you know it's for holly jones she's running for I think it was city council at that time. Might have been. Might have been county commission. Might have been county commission. Yeah, I don't yeah. remember. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but I like to say that that commercial is what won the election for. <laughs> it is, of course. <laughs> uh, but if you'd done one for her last year, it would have been. She would have been lieutenant governor, obviously. <laughs> did she not? Did she not? Uh, no, she didn't. Okay. Yeah. What she so she was running for lieutenant governor. I've lost track of the. Yeah, in sixteen, she. Yeah, the 16 primary, and she lost the primary in 16, yeah. Well, you know, the thing that I learned in doing that work with her, and really from talking to so many people about it, because even one of my cameramen is really a libertarian, but he did it anyway, you know, he, <laughs> and he liked Holly, you know, but yeah. he, but he uh, and, and I think it didn't, probably didn't sway him enough to vote differently necessarily, but he was, he's really political, and, and he's a smart guy, he just thinks differently from, I, from sure. me. But I respect him because he's not a jerk about it, you know, right. most, mostly. <laughs> um, well, libertarians are Republicans who smoke dope generally, and uh, some of them get edgy about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, yeah, I mean, he, he, but he was the one who taught me, or he said it, and it was the first time I really heard it. He's like, you know, 
your local politics really has a more direct influence on your life yeah. than national politics. And I'd never thought of that. It yeah. makes perfect sense. The farther away you get from actually your ecosystem, the less of an impact it has realistically. But it always feels like the, the president is the most important sure. vote I mean, to cast. The press t tends to, just the press coverage tends to make us feel that way. Now this, you know, the presidential election is absolutely crucial because of something. I, I might go to war, you know, but actually, who's paving your street? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Who's making those decisions, and yeah. that's on the local Who, level. Who's paying the fire department? Yeah. Yeah. So how did, um, how did we both end up on this Jeff Messer? uh <laughs> maintaining an election show on saturday i mean it was so cool to do it and that was how i finally got to meet you and i remember when he said oh cecil bothwell is gonna be on. i was like oh that's great i've been wanting to meet this guy you know for 10 years right so well did... um i don't know how you know jeff but i've known jeff for um let's see 15 or 18 years something like that and so when when um at the radio station there, it used to be uh, two people who did the the liberal talk on uh, 880. Um, I'm drawing a blank right now. Excuse me on names. But anyway, they were looking for somebody new, and I, I applied for it. In fact, I, I – um, the uh, America – Voice America – what's that called? America – uh, again, I'm drawing a blank. It was the uh, Al Franken was on a network that was national nationwide of uh, liberal talk, and they ran. Air, it was, it wasn't Air, Air America. Air America. Yeah, okay. yeah. Air America ran a a, a a contest, and I won the local contest here. I won a thousand bucks, in fact. Oh. Uh, uh, and I thought I was lined up to be uh, the the take the job that Jeff eventually got. But for whatever reason, the radio station didn't like me, and maybe I was too political for a left-wing radio. I don't know. But um, <laughs> so these uh, uh, two people got the gig, and they did it for a while, and then Jeff Messer got the job. And so I've been like in touch with that, the whole space there for quite a while. And when he got it, he started having me on the on the air pretty frequently. I mean, I, a few times a year at least, I'm one of his guests there. Uh, and we, we've hit it off. So that's, that's been a, uh, there's continuity there. That's why I was on his, his first late night talk show, uh, whatever. And you have known him for a while too. I've known from him another... just, just for a little over a year. Uh, yeah. I, a friend of mine, I had somebody working for me and she had a friend who was working for the radio station or working right. for Jeff directly. I don't honestly know. Yeah. And I have this yoga product and she said, Hey, you know, could you get Jason an interview on the air? And Jeff was super receptive. He's like, oh, yeah, that sounds like the kind of thing we like to do. And he likes to mix it up. And sure, sure. So he said, sure, come on in. And I went in and we just had a great time. Like, we just, you know, really high energy, which is different from, I think, a lot of his guests. A lot of it's pretty serious. And yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I only listened to it a few times, but it's it it didn't it doesn't all sound like the sort of vibe and energy that he and I get to when we're on the air. I don't know if you've heard me on the show and I'd be amazed if you had, but you saw me on Saturday when we did our little panel discussion. Right. And that's exactly what it's like when I'm on his radio show. Right. So and I suspect that, that both of us having been performers uh, are able to be maybe a little more lively uh, in, in the interview format. 
Yeah. You know, you're you're comfortable being on stage. I'm comfortable being on stage. Yeah. So maybe that's something, and maybe that's the tooth that maybe that clicked for him in his first attempt at this uh, late night talk show format. I mean, he did a great work. job. I mean, that yeah. was. <laughs> I mean, just like just thinking about the whole thing, like I. I didn't really give it a thought because everything I do is live theater. I do stand-up comedy, and you never know what's going to happen, and there's right. there's no rewind. Right. And, you know, I just thought that, first of all, his monologue was hysterical. He yes. was nervous about it, but I thought it was really, really funny. I thought so, too. Yeah. And yeah. I thought that, I mean, it was so funny. I was like, God, I hope they like me when I get up there. Like, right. I, they're really laughing at this, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to make them laugh this hard. And so that was interesting going in. And just, you know, the whole thing from start to finish was an unscripted, unplanned series of conversations. I mean, he had it in his head. He knew the people. He knew the players. Right. But he still couldn't know how well it was going to work, and it went really, really well. Right. Well, you know, my, my first words out of my mouth when I got to the microphone were, I felt bad interrupting him because it had been so funny up until then. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to ruin your show for the next right. half hour. <laughs> well, you guys, but you, but, you know, he knew how to interview you, and you knew how to be interviewed for that thing. And, sure. And, and you know, you guys really talked about interesting things and in which i you know we may or may not get into here i mean i'm i'm interested in it like i thought i i really the thing that struck me was when you were talking about the driverless buses mm -hmm. and and you were talking about you know with, with the driverless bus the drivers are the most expensive asset although i would have thought the buses would be expensive but you know maybe on an operational level the drivers are expensive and so you know we can run four buses an hour without a driver for the same cost as one bus an hour with a driver. Right. The The capital cost is a sunk cost, and, and it works out over the life of a bus. Right. Um, but the, the driver is an ongoing daily cost. And, and in the bigger picture, uh, driverless vehicles are about to be an incredible uh, wrenching, if cause a wrenching effect on uh, employment in America. Uh, driving is the biggest single job category for men in America. I did not know that. Yeah. In From fact, in taxis some... taxis to buses to subways to boats to... Delivery. Everything. Uh, all that. And in fact, I've read that in some mid to Midwest, Midwestern and slightly west of Midwestern states, uh, almost half the jobs are driving because they have so, such long distances for delivery of farm products and mining products and all that sort of thing. When these driverless things really hit, we're going to see a disruption of jobs in this country and, and around the world uh, that we haven't ever experienced. It, it's beyond the the uh, automation that's occurred, beyond the robotics in manufacturing. We're about to see a, a complete shift. And, and frankly, I think that it, it's going to trigger either an armed revolution or a guaranteed annual wage. <laughs> Oh, I see. One or the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. it's going to be big. And so for the bus system, yeah, for the bus system, right now we have to stretch out that cost of the driver over as many passengers as possible. And, right. And, and once we get to the um, self-driving electric buses, there are two things happen. One is the electric buses last much longer. Uh, electric motors are much more durable than internal combustion. So... Uh, and that's why we've already switched some of our buses in Asheville to hybrid, they're gas hybrids, which uh, the engine only charges the batteries, which run the, the motor. 
but the electric buses will last longer and we cut out the driver and so we'll, we'll have smaller like what, 10 passenger maybe 15 passenger buses that will run much more frequently and suddenly transit becomes really really convenient right because which it is in some big cities right already. here yeah. it's a nightmare i mean you it's know. a nightmare yeah. yeah you miss a bus here you're stuck for an hour well, I just what you know what struck me was the whole big picture that you drew. You know, where you said downtown's becoming unaffordable, which makes sense. It's beautiful down there. Yeah. And so people are having to move farther and farther away, and they're disenfranchised, and they maybe can't afford a car, and then they can't get into town, and then they can't work, or they can't work where there's higher paying jobs. I mean, then they're stuck doing right. rural jobs, which may I don't I don't know, but it sounds like they may not pay as well. Likely not. You know, particularly if the employers know the employees don't have a choice. Like that's, right, right. That's not going to drive up the rates any. Yeah. So. Uh, and then, and then, um, it there the driving from a distance creates that high cost for right. if they own a car. It's a relatively high cost for commuting. The further you go out, the cheaper rent becomes. So. You know, you get cheaper in one direction and then more expensive in the direction of commuting, which is why some banks these days actually calculate your commute in terms of uh, getting a mortgage. Oh, how um, much you'll be able because to they, that's, afford they, to pay they back. calculate that as part of it. But if we could get buses further out, um, we, we obviously couldn't have the density of bus stops that we do in the city, but maybe park and rides out further out right um then we get people into town now we we've eliminated part of the parking problem downtown right we've also eliminated part of the carbon footprint because there's less um f emissions per person on buses than there are per vehicle in uh in automobiles so we're solving a climate change issue we're solving a parking issue we're solving a cost issue it is it's it really makes a lot of sense if we can make that work and the only and, and the biggest cost to solving those issues is the loss of human labor like we're we're right. <laughs> we're taking away jobs we're taking away jobs yeah but i mean in in terms of uh per capita or whatever the number of bus drivers is relatively low i mean in, in terms of the whole economy the number of drivers is high, but in terms of, of local transit, the number of drivers is relatively low. Are you saying local within Asheville or local to most? In any municipality. Yeah. I mean, they're, you know, but it's going to cost jobs and it's not going to be pretty. And I, I really, when I contemplate, I've been thinking about driverless vehicles for a, a few years. I've, I did a TEDx talk in 2014 and a Pecha Kucha talk in 2015. And I've been writing about it for a while. I mean, I, this is something I've been considering. I su suspect the Teamsters Union is very likely to cause huge disruptions as this comes on board. The Teamsters are going to be very upset. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see the kind of saboteur behavior that this, the original Sabbaths, uh, when, the, when the mills were coming in, Sabbaths, the word saboteur comes from shoe. Uh, Sabbath was a shoe, and the the mill workers who were complaining about automation threw their shoes, their wooden shoes, into the gears to stop the mills. Right. That's, that's where it comes from. And uh, I suspect that these drivers, like the Teamsters Union, will be very, very unhappy with the shift that's coming. And it's coming fast. I've, I'm, I've put the city... Uh, the city of Asheville staff is now in touch with the people I've been talking to at Keolis who are doing 
demonstrations of driverless buses around the country. We're going to have a demo here sometime in the coming year. I don't know the, the date yet, but it's it's really happening. It's happened in Las Vegas already, a, a demo, and in Austin and in Los, An- Los Angeles. They are running driverless buses in Shanghai, in Amsterdam, in Switzerland, in France already. And there's uh, driverless semis on the roads of Los, of uh, Nevada right now. Really? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, and there's wow. mining operations that are using driverless buses, uh, driverless uh, dump trucks. It, it's just it, it is coming so fast that we're going to. Well, get it's a technology. With <laughs> 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 no one to blame. So, I mean, it's a technology. So once the technology becomes prevalent, then it's just going to permeate everything i mean it's oh certainly i I, in my talks i've compared it to the cell phone right you know at first the cell phone was clunky and expensive and a few people had these large objects that they carried around in their cars my dad had one yeah 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 and with it only took about 12 years or 15 i don't know but it it, it, they're ubiquitous and the phone booth disappeared uh almost everywhere uh some countries no longer have phone booths at all yeah I did one of my favorite paintings. I used to be an artist. Some of the, all the round paintings in the house are mine. The, oh. the the super realistic ones are ones I bought from artists, but the more abstract ones are mine. And one of my favorite paintings, which sold immediately, was of a phone booth in L.A. Right. You know, and it's like the phone was off the hook, and the thing was a mess. You know, it was just destroyed, <laughs> and it was, had graffiti all over it, and it kind of embodied that sort of strata of society that you know that needs a payphone. And destroys the payphone right. that it needs. You know, like it's the same people are destroying it are the ones who need it. And this was, this was before cell phones. But anyway, it's just I had I known that cell phones were coming and that payphones were leaving, I would have done a lot more paintings of really cool rundown payphones because it was a, <laughs> it was a neat painting and and uh, and I I wish that I had documented that. I mean, that's one of the neat things about being a visual artist. Yeah, is you are documenting history. You don't necessarily realize it at the time because it's hard to know what's going to be obsolete and when. Although everything, I guess, eventually. In my uh, paintings, uh, I the, a year ago I, I did about a year of paintings of barns because barns are disappearing. Oh yeah, um, farmers no longer bale hay, or rarely bale hay because they use these big rollers that make these big huge uh, circles of hay that they keep on the ground and put a tarp over or or not even they just let the outside layer weather Mm. Um, but they aren't throwing it up in a in a hayloft anymore and tobacco is going away so the tobacco barns are not important and if if a barn is not important you you don't spend the money to keep the roof intact and barns are falling down and they're really quite picturesque in oh, the same beautiful. way that you're yeah. that you're talking about the the pay, the, the uh, phone booth with the dangling phone and it was torn apart the barns are falling down it, it was it, we're going to learn i think um say 20 or 30 years out now looking back that what we think of as a barn was a a particular historic period Hmm. that um when when they needed a big place for um animals to be indoors and the hay to be indoors and the the tobacco to be drying and and those are falling down and going away like the phone booths well you know the reason i 
postponed our meeting today by half an hour is because I went for a bike ride. It's the, my first right. road ride of the season. I picked my first asparagus today. Does that count? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, you know, we're both celebrating spring. <laughs> yeah. And, and I rode by a number of these barns, one of which is yeah. painted red, brand new paint. Mm -hmm. and, I, and it struck me that it had brand new paint on it. But it's one of my favorite things about this area aesthetically is these beautiful old falling down wooden barns. I mean, they are right. just exquisite looking. Right, right. Every one of them. I mean, they all have their own character and they all have something sort of in common. And, and, and the wood has all weathered kind of the same amount. They're all from the same, same era. time period. Yeah. And it's really, really neat. And it's just one of the things that, that I think makes this area beautiful. Eventually, I'm assuming they will be removed every once right. in a while someone goes in and reclaims the wood and builds something new out of it which i always think is cool right that's ideal yeah, yeah. i lived out in broad river uh which is down south of black mountain for the first 20 some years i lived in buncombe county and uh i had a a pretty cool trade deal with a, a woman a widow woman who had been a farmer she and her ex her dead husband had been farmers for ever in in broad river and i i traded her labor for about an acre of uh land down near the river where i grew stuff i had mm -hmm. a big big garden back then and one year she had me paint her barn and this was a barn that was probably 100 years old and it had been gray just weathered gray right and before she died she wanted to see it red <laughs> and so I painted her barn red. And how soon after you finished painting it did and, she die? Uh, a couple, three or four years after that, I moved into Asheville and she died. I didn't, I wasn't in close touch then. And the next time I went out there, the barn was gone. Oh. Uh, it's been redeveloped as a housing project and they knocked it down. A housing project like a rich person's housing project? Yeah, or yeah, a, a, gate, yeah a, gated, a gated, gated community. community. That yeah. was the other thing today when I went on this ride. I rode, I did a ride today I've never done before. Yeah. And I, I'm, you know, I work up in Weaverville, and so I'm able to, you know, I'm going to put my bike in my car, and then I just, from work, went on this ride that I'd never done, and then, you know, ended up back at my warehouse and then came here. And it was about 16 miles, which is, you know, not bad for my first ride out. Not and, bad at all. <laughs> and uh, about an hour and a half and lots of steep hills. And I rode by so many gated communities that I had never heard of. I mean, not that I would hear of them, but I just didn't imagine that on these back roads there'd be this many of them. But there were a lot. And like five, $600,000 houses, you know, really expensive. Right. And it's interesting what's happening with all that. The... Uh, and again, this, this speaks to the my whole argument about transit and affordability. After World War II, uh, people who could afford cars, and it was predominantly white people who could afford cars, moved out of the cities and, and the so-called white flight. They moved out to the suburbs. And that model maintained, and it still in some respects maintains today, that people with money move away from the city. Right. But then around the turn of the century, uh, money began to rediscover downtown. And and so we started bidding up old warehouses and old office buildings were being condominiumized. And, and now we have these really high dollar condominiums downtown, say in Asheville, because the money's moving in. And although some people are still buying into those gated communities further out, the in, the the inconvenience of that 
is beginning to wear on people. And there's a glut, actually, of in, in Buncombe County of high-end houses that won't sell. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that the, the million-dollar houses are. There's a backlog of of on those because people don't really really want to. A lot of people don't want to live out there. There's still this overlap. I mean, some people still think it's very cool to be out in a gated community, uh, away from everything. And other people are realizing, you know, you could live in a condo downtown and walk. Yeah, <laughs> and I I wanted to buy. So when I first moved here, for, I bought this house immediately. I knew the sellers and they were going to rent it, and they said, yeah. yeah, we'd rather sell it. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll buy it. You know, I moved here from L.A. This seemed like a bargain. I mean, it was a bargain by L.A. standards. Yeah, and but it's clearly too much house. I mean, that's crazy how big this house is. And I, at one point, looked at a couple lofts downtown in the Crest Building, which is one of my favorite buildings. Mm-hmm. It's just it's in a great spot. I mean, you know, right off Lexington College and Patton. I mean, it just, you don't get right. a better right. location than that. And I uh, found these two adjacent apartments that were both available. So I was going to poke a hole and connect them. But their view was of the BB&T building, which is the ugliest building in Asheville. Right. <laughs> and and that was all you could see. I mean, you could sort of see, you know, to the sides of it at a really hard angle if yeah. you went up to the window and looked. But basically, your view was of the BB&T building. Right. And yeah. and that was a little bit before the rental market was so out of control here. Yeah. Because like, I could have, if I'd bought it, I could be renting those things for a fortune. Right. Right. You know, so, and I regret every day that I didn't buy those apartments yeah i mean you could you could be living on short-term rental there oh yeah downtown. totally yeah. yeah and and now the bbt building's being redesigned and rebuilt and it's going to be beautiful apparently theoretically uh yeah. you know the drawings look great and yeah it, it, it's one of those things you'd be hard to wreck <laughs> <laughs> it won't be worse yeah yeah it won't be worse i mean Asheville was really it saved we're lucky we don't have more bbt buildings in Asheville. i mean that, yeah yeah well what the thing that saved Asheville, uh, for those who haven't been here or haven't paid attention over a long period, the um, Asheville went broke in the during the Depression uh, due to a couple of things. One was simply the collapse of of the economy, but um, apparently the someone with a key to the treasury of Asheville, I don't know what they called him back there, and chief financial officer or whatever, absconded with millions of dollars. And the city discovered that it didn't have money. <laughs> and, I didn't know that. I and never it went heard into story. debt. And it didn't pay off its debt until the 70s. And so through the whole urban renewal era that, uh, that affected so many cities during the 50s and 60s, when they were knocking down downtowns and building horrible, ugly public housing and everything, Asheville couldn't afford to do that. And hence, we have the largest number of Art Deco buildings uh, of any city in the United States other than Miami, Florida. Wow. Um, that's what preserved things like the S&W and the, the Crest Building. I know, they're and so built. I the mean, Jackson so Building. Yeah. And, yeah we, it saved us because we were broke up until almost till 1980 when they paid off the, be- the debts. And by then, um, the notion of what a downtown was was shifting and we had Julian Price come in with a ton of money. He was uh, heir to the uh, Jefferson um, Jefferson Pilot Insurance Company. He was uh, a guy who was a little older than I'm 66, so he was probably 10 years my senior, but he was an early hippie. And he went to the West Coast and became a photographer and did his hippie life out there and then came back to North Carolina 
and realized that he was inheriting just a, a massive ton of money and settled in Asheville and started buying up all these decrepit buildings and refurbishing them. Wow. Um, Into their original yeah, state. Tr- deciding to save these things and then turning them over and making them available. And so we had the, uh, it was the gas company building, which is now the self-help credit building downtown. That was his first one, which is almost entirely rented to nonprofits. And then he bought the building where Malaprops is. And Mm -hmm. that's um, a great building. Made Malaprops possible there and, and uh, refurb the upstairs into units and on and on. They, he created this company called, um, Public service projects, and uh, did did good work for the city. I mean, he I'm sure he made some money on it, but he kept okay. it, he kept his profit low enough that he he wasn't being the, the grotesque speculator. He was being the the builder of the city, and then he died way too young of uh, spleen cancer, but left behind that legacy of having really goosed Asheville at the right moment. I mean, he he made uh, Hector's uh, salsa possible, and uh, Hector's a few other restaurants. He he started Mountain Bizworks, which back then was a different name back then. But anyway, he 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 did things to boost the city. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a legacy to what leave behind. Leave behind. Yeah, yeah. That's really yeah. great. In fact, there's a movie made about a year and a half ago about his his work. What's it it's, called? Uh, sorry, I don't have the title. Uh, but then, tell me his name again. Uh, Julian Price. Julian. All right, so we can you can look him we'll up. We'll Google easily. Julian yeah, Price documentary, yeah. and we'll put a link to it on our website. We all try right. to. Well, we try to link to things that we talk about yeah, in sure. this conversation. There'll sure. be a page dedicated to this conversation on our website, and then we'll link to the things if we think of it. Sure. Like this documentary, so people sure. can kind of follow the breadcrumbs. Yeah, and that makes up for the fact that sometimes memory is weak. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> My memory's getting worse and worse. Uh-huh. I'm really noticing it because, you know, I mean, I perform stand-up all the time. That's how we met as I was performing sure. while you were doing your uh, guest spot. And, you know, I'm 47, which isn't old, but I'm a relatively new parent. I have a nine-year-old daughter. I run all these businesses. I'm totally stressed out all the time, and I don't sleep. Yeah. And my lack of sleep really affects my memory. I so don't doubt it. Yeah. Me getting on stage and remembering what I went there to say, I mean, I'm forgetting things constantly. When you saw me perform, I have that thing down pretty tight. Right. But mm. other than that, like, I, you know, the other night I went up, I'm trying to, I'm preparing to do a half hour, which is a long time. I did about 15 minutes the other night, right. what you saw. And right. that, and it would have been less, except people were laughing <laughs> at long applause breaks, but, uh, which is a welcome problem. But, Generally, that's like maybe a 10-minute set or so. And I'm doing a half hour in the end of May. So I'm doing a lot of new material at the open mics around town or or refurbishing old material, trying to get it back together. The other night I walked up, I told my first joke, and I was like, I had no idea what I was planning to say next. And I'm trying to get out of the habit of bringing up notes. Notes, yeah. Because I don't want to bring that for my half hour. I want to deliver a solid half hour. It makes a difference to the audience that you're not looking down and... You know, that you're maintaining contact with them the whole time. When when I was um, in my early 40s, in the early 90s, um, I was slamming poetry. And, of course, uh, memorizing a three-minute poem is not a particularly big deal. I mean, you you can do that, especially if you do it, if you do them often enough. And I still can recite off-the-cuff poems I did then. Yeah. And um, But I got kind of enthused about performance at the time and i wrote a two-hour uh one-person performance wow that i delivered at what was called the green door it it 
it uh, it was a kind of a hot spot for it was where the poetry slams were held here uh, down in Asheville underneath Broadway there's a anyway there's an alley behind called Chicken Alley behind right. uh, it was the, the front door for it was there and I did that two hour show three times uh, that summer and that was a lot of memorization yeah two yeah. hours by yeah. yourself yeah hell yeah that's a lot of memorization two hours with about a ten minute intermission in the middle of it it was the history of the world from 314 BC until 314 p.m. last Thursday <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, it's a great concept. Yeah, and it was it was really fun, and it, and it but it was really quite a a personal accomplishment. Apart from whatever it was good in terms of performance for the people, it was something for me. It, it was quite a thing to accomplish that that piece. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That one came out of my brother. Um, was uh had a history major so he uh, became a hotel manager uh that's kind of why not yeah, why not you know he couldn't do anything was with it his a historic hotel or was it a hilton <laughs> and uh when he was uh operating a hotel in in uh winter park florida uh one of his co-workers was constantly broke and he wanted to buy a car and he sold my brother a a couple of handfuls of old coins that he'd inherited from his father and my brother gave me one of those coins uh just i don't know why i don't remember exactly what the deal was but i looked it up and it was minted in lydia around 315 bc wow um it was something like a penny it was copper and it had an imprint i i, I was able through a lot of research to figure out whose face was on it it was one of the earliest coins that's amazing and, yeah and i and i what what it triggered for me was where has this thing been yeah, for all then, these years? Then, it turned out it wasn't particularly valuable. There's a lot of old coin of those kind of old squished copper coins in mm -hmm. the world. I mean, it didn't have any. I don't know, maybe worth ten bucks or something. I don't know. But uh, the guy bought his car. My brother gave him money and he bought his car. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I decided to write a story about where this came from and what it had done. So I concocted a story based on what I knew of history. Uh, from the time it was being mined by uh, uh, a slave named G. Ra who worked naked in the mines because that's what slaves did then, to it being minted, to it traveling with uh, Alexander the Great's army into Persia, traveling to India, traveling to China, traveling with some of the earliest explorers to Peru because the Chinese, I learned, had, had made some contact across the ocean mm. to Polynesia and to Peru, and then up through the Indian tribes in America, and then across the Atlantic to Europe, where it ended up again in a collection where a World War II soldier bought it off of someone and returned it to the United States, and his son sold it to my brother. That was the, that was the, that was the story yeah. over 2,000 years. Um, it was it was a fun sort of story to tell. That's totally cool. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> you're always looking for a vehicle to tell your story, exactly. and that's yes. a great vehicle. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me, like, did you ever did you ever read Tom Robbins? Yeah. Right, and he had there was a about the silver spoon and the dirty sock, and they're like traveling all around. And, right, but they're right. moving at the speed of objects, which is slow. Right. <laughs> right. But you you become accustomed to this time frame, and then the whole book makes sense from there. Sure, you know, I was I, I'm sure I was, I, and I know I was reading Tom Robbins during those that period of my life, and and I'm sure he was one of the influences. Well, uh, either he was yeah. on you or you were on him. You know, we'll never Could, know. Never can tell. Never <laughs> can tell. Right. So how, so what is, that gives me some interest in your background. Like, I didn't realize that you were 
a slam poet and that you were a painter. I mean, tell me a little bit about, you know, who you were before you became whatever I am, <laughs> the, who you are. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, let's see. Drifting back through time. I dropped out of college in 1970 after I got a really high draft number. Well, that was the first draft lottery for Vietnam. Um, they changed from everybody being liable to be drafted to they drew numbers right. and you knew then, which was nice to have some certainty in your life. And I realized that I really didn't have any particular goal in college other than staying out of Vietnam. And so I dropped out to paint and, um, when so when back, you say you had a high draft number, that meant that means a low probability. Low probability, of right? Because right. okay. the order, yeah. If you had yeah, yeah. a number one, you were going to be drafted. Okay. Yeah. I I was like three sixty four. They it was by date. Yeah. Billy Crystal I mean, has a similar story. He was like three sixty. You know. He's yeah. Like, it was way up yeah. there. And and so I was safe and decided to, to follow my dream and um, went back to Florida, where my parents lived, and uh, started painting. Um, paintings which i hope none of which survive <laughs> but it was it was an attempt and uh, in the course of going to these uh sidewalk there are a lot of sidewalk art shows in florida because of the weather i met a young woman and we fell in love and i got married um went into construction in order to ha have a living and started a rock band in order to not have a living and uh, <laughs> uh did the rock band thing for a few years in addition to construction but became a contractor and uh, divorced happily. We were both, it was too young, we we realized, and we're still dear friends. I landed in New Hampshire as a, a masonry contractor and later a general contractor, and then landed in North Carolina uh, due to a sequence of things. Um, so I really was in construction for about 25 years, and to the best of my ability, as I understood things going along, I was a green builder. Mm. I emphasized solar, uh, especially passive solar and so forth, and, and learned a lot about the, um, the ways that our lifestyles can impact our, Im our, can affect our impact on the earth. Um, during that time when I got here, I, I lived on solar power off the grid for 22 years. I began toward the, um, my late 30s, I was born in 1950, so approaching 1990, I realized that I really liked to write, and so I decided to push in that direction, and in in that regard, uh, decided to write whatever worked. So I went back to songwriting, started performing around uh, the Asheville, Western North Carolina area in bars, singer-songwriter stuff, started slamming poetry, won the Southeast Poetry Slam in 1993, went to the Nationals and came in 14th, that's which is cool. not everything, but uh, no, it was cool. That's not bad. It was cool to get a ticket to San Francisco. That was... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a cool thing to take part in, you know? I mean, yeah, it really was. It was quite a scene. It was yeah, really uh, quite bet. an amazing scene. And when did the slam poetry scene, when was that born? It was sometime in the late 80s, I think, because it was already going in 1990 when I began to get involved in it. It started in Chicago uh, and spread pretty quickly across the United States. Okay. And, and the idea was you, you um, performed original work that was three minutes or less. Uh, and then it was judged by members of the audience uh, with uh, scorecards, sort of like Olympics. So you could get a 8.1, right. 7.3. <laughs> And, um, and and that was a really interesting, and that led to my performance, that, that one person performance in 93. 
Um, so again, I was just pursuing the writing. At the same time, I started doing some uh, freelance reporting for what was then called the Green Line, which became the Mountain Express in 94. Hmm. And I wrote the first cover story for the Express in 94. Uh, that was an amazing thing. It was about uh, the drug reinforcement thing that they were doing in, in schools back then. Um, and they still are, I think. Drug reinforcement? Uh, dr drug uh, reinforcement education. Dare. Dare. Oh, dare. Drug, yeah, drug. I don't know what that means. And, uh, reinforcement education. Uh, the Research Triangle Institute in Raleigh had, or Durham, had... Um, done a study with showed that people who went through the dare program used drugs earlier and more frequently than kids who had not gone through it and so it was having an inverse effect yeah it was telling uh, kids what to go buy exactly yeah and the federal government did everything they could to suppress the report even though mm -hmm. they had contracted for the report and so my story was about that and it got picked up not only I mean, the mountain express it was the first cover and then it got picked up in ohio and florida and i thought wow I could do syndicated stuff. I hadn't mm. really, that hadn't hit me before. Right. And I was also beginning to do a radio program on WNCW radio. I was doing a weekly commentary. So I started doing it as a written commentary as well. And it got picked up by Alternet and was running in, in newspapers all around the country for a few years. Actually, it stayed in, it was in syndication for 10 years from 93 to 2003. And that led me deeper into writing and editing, and I ended up getting hired at Warren Wilson College and started an environmental journal there and left that and became managing editor of the Mountain Express, which um, um, I hated. Managing writers and artists is not... I mean, I'm not a manager. I mean, I'm sure it's good for some people, but it was not good for yeah, me. Yeah, so that's a special <laughs> skill. So I continued as a reporter there until 2007, and you know, you, you're, this uh, podcast is called "Learning to Fail." Yeah. And, uh, actually, I could I could skip back through my life and and point out that I I failed upward over and over and over again. Uh, uh, how do you so, feel? Well, I mean, well uh, okay. The, the one I've just gotten to here is I was fired at the Mountain Express. Three years running, I had been tapped in the Express poll as the best local reporter. Um. And of course, the the week the poll the the annual poll at Mount Express is about advertising. I mean, mm. that's why they do it. They want to find out what their readers, where their readers like to eat, where their readers like to drink, what they, what, and that way they can go out to the advertisers and say, "Hey, our people like your restaurant. You should be putting your ads." Uh. But they also stick in these other categories to make it seem more legit. Uh, favorite politician, favorite writer, favorite radio person. I mean, whatever. Okay. Two days after the third year in a row that I was tapped for best writer, I was fired. Um, as far as I can tell, that was because I had a book coming out in about two weeks that was very critical of Billy Graham. It's probably the only critical political biography of Billy Graham uh, that it's the only one I know of. There's some there's some uh, religious critiques of him, but not political. Anyway, I got fired and. Oh, I was pissed. <laughs> I can and, imagine. Uh, and about two months, three months later, I was thinking, <clears throat> I have covered a lot of local politics. And so maybe I should run for office. So in, in February of 2008 is when I decided to run for uh, Buncombe County Commission because the filing period was right then for a May primary. 
I thought, well, you know, why not? I mean, I've seen the government from the outside as a reporter. Why not try it from the inside? And um, that's the one I mentioned uh, in, earlier in our talk that, that I lost the primary by 0.08%. That's crazy. Uh, to uh, Bill Stanley, who was in, he, he'd been 20 years on commission at that point. And was he Republican or Democrat? Democrat. This was a Democratic primary. Oh, it's Democratic primary. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, and I gave up politics. And then I, uh, that summer, a friend of mine said, you know, you won in the city. Why don't you run? And so the following year, I, I, in 09, I ran for city council and won. Who was this friend? Uh, Brian Sarzinski, he was my cellmate at um, the Mountain Express. We shared okay. an office there. His cellmate. <laughs> he was, you, he was, you now think back on that as a prison term. Well, it it, it had its elements, yeah. Yeah. I can... But, I mean, skipping back through things, it's it's been amazing in my life that failing has led to success over and over and over again. Uh, when I was young and stupid and had a rock band and um, – and trying to get a work in construction, I, I didn't understand main, maintaining a car very well. And so I ended up being late for uh, being late for work in my first masonry job. Uh, I was just a mason's tender. That means I mixed mortar and shoveled mortar so masons could do it. And I played with a trowelsome. And I got fired because I just didn't show up often enough. And a week later, I got hired uh, with a $2 raise as an apprentice mason at another job. And that guy, um, about th four months later, he got pissed off at the general contractor and pulled his, the whole crew out mm. and fired me. He said, we don't, I don't have any work here. Right. But as I was packing up my tools, the general contractor said, could you do this? It was foundations for condominiums. I said, sure. And so I suddenly was a subcontractor, a masonry subcontractor, and hired, like, I had 21 employees within about two months. Wow. And um, so then skipping on forward, I mean, that, and that construction, I ended up actually working mostly by myself because I, I really, the whole employee thing is, is it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to do. Yeah, I think. managing I mean, people yeah. is a separate. Yeah, and all the finances and everything. But, um, okay, further on out, the case, I did that pretty well in construction for many, many years. But when I started doing the writing, I was at WNCW doing the uh, on-air uh, uh, commentary once a week. And my commentaries ran every Tuesday for five minutes in the morning and the evening. They, they, liked, they did like uh, to have local commentators. And so three years into that... Um, I always recorded my stuff about eight weeks ahead. So I, I, I would go down to the station in Spindale and record eight sections and they would play them then. And I'd right. get, okay. So they didn't listen to them. They didn't ever edit my stuff. They just mm -hmm. ran them. Well, there was an on-air fundraiser coming up, you know, the typical public radio fundraiser. Right. Yeah. And that was during the period when, this would have been about 95, 95, 96, somewhere in there, when the... Um, the federal government cut funding for public radio and public TV, and they suddenly shifted to a lot more advertising. And that's the model we have today. I mean, back then it used to be, you know, we're supported by underwriting from Ford Motor Company. And now they say we're supported by Ford Motor Company, manufacturer of the Focus, the best car in the world for you a small <laughs> right. car. And they, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's they, definitely advertising. Yeah. So I, I timed it out and... Uh, including the self-promotion of other programs and the ad sections, there were actually more minutes of advertising on 
public radio than in uh, nighttime TV. Wow. Yeah. And that's the way it is today. If you if you actually time it out, there's an awful lot of promotion going on. On and and, and I understand the model. I, I get it. You know, you got to fund the damn thing. But I um, well, the government sucked all their support out of a, a lot of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So for my well, Trump will take out the rest. So my fundraiser commentary was, you know, I know you love this station like I do, and that's why I'm here. And I hope you're going to donate to our fundraiser this spring, and. What I'd like you to do is tell the nice person on the phone how much you want to donate, but then tell them how much more you would donate if they'd cut back on advertising. Mm. And I offered my statistics in the, you know. Right. Well, they ran it in the morning that day, and they cut it in the evening that day, and I got a phone call from the station manager who said, you're through here. And I'd been doing this for free for three years. Wow. You know? I mean, I'd gone, you know, I mean, I'd. Obviously, I, I had a platform which I liked, but still, I was right. investing a lot of writing time. Um, and in the end, actually, for ten years, I wrote over over four hundred and fifty, seven hundred and twenty-five word commentaries. Wow. I mean, it was a great practice yeah. over that time, you know, to, to to try to say what you need to say within a certain segment. Anyway, um, and I said, "What?" He said, "Well, you've had your chance here. You've, you know, we've given you your time here." And we have a we have other people waiting in line, and I said, okay, well, whatever. Yeah. A well, suspicious. two weeks later, I got a phone call from a fellow, John Huey, over at Warren Wilson College, and he said, Cecil, um, WN said WNCW has called me. They're desperate to fill an empty time slot on Tuesdays. They don't have anybody lined up. Uh, could I pay you to write for me? Mm. And uh, and so for the next three or four years. I was paid to write the slot I had done for free before. <laughs> um, and I mean, so I was getting like 50 bucks a shot to just write these 725 word commentaries. And that led to being hired at Warren Wilson College. This is my, my failing forward thing. I get it, yeah. Uh, to start their environmental journal. And I also started writing uh, scripts for Jane Goodall and William Leesteet Moon. We were trying to peddle a national public radio thing. And so my, my commentaries were, my other ones were recorded by Jane Goodall, which was so cool. I got yeah, to work totally. with Bill McKibben. I got to work with uh, E.O. Wilson up in Harvard. I, I met all these environmental people. Um, and the radio, the national radio thing didn't didn't go, which is no problem. But I was actually getting paid to be a writer and editor, which is what had been my goal uh, eight years before. Hmm. That led to me uh, getting the job as managing editor of the Mountain Express, which led to me getting to know the city. I moved into the city because I'd been out in the country, and I moved into the city in 2001 and uh, got to know the city and ended up getting to know the government well enough that I decided to run for office. I mean, it seems like each time I got fired, it, got, it bumped me into a better position. Well, that that's the story. If, yeah, I, I mean, well, that's that happens in life, though. You know, it I mean, does. It's like yeah. door closes, window opens, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You just got to crawl through it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah, it's really true. I mean, I, um, I mean, my, you know, I have variations on my story, but you know, my biggest thing is this yoga product I created that's used all over the world, and I created it for my back. And my back is something I destroyed mountain biking and lifting heavy things for a living for years i built furniture for 10 years and wow. i was just moving all this heavy stuff all the time yeah, yeah and that wasn't too bad because i was getting stronger while i did it but then after i had this wreck on my mountain bike i couldn't do it anymore but mm. i kept doing it and i just racked i mean i just destroyed myself you know and i ended up inventing a product right to 
manage it. <laughs> and, uh, and that became my life for the last 10 years, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, so. you know, we, if, if you are able, if you're able and willing to learn from the problems, they can lead, always lead to better things. And I mean, I don't think it's necessarily magical, but it, it's no, certainly but there. It, yeah. But not everybody has a willingness to look at failure. It's like when I perform, I go back and listen to my sets, not just the good ones. Right. You know, right. I listen to the ones that didn't work. I'm like, okay, you know, that didn't work that well. And especially a lot of times you think it's working. Like the applause is a lot louder and the laughter is a lot louder when you're on stage than when you're listening to the recording later. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I have got to find a way to record this audience better. But there's times when they all laugh loud enough that it even sounds good on the recording. So, right. you know, it's like, you know, if you're honest with yourself, whether or not it's really working. And certainly so. And so that's, you know, that's a big piece of it. And then another um, piece of of not not to only be about me 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 but no this I is guess supposed to be I'm about here. you that's yeah no, me, me, we're, me. <laughs> we're here to talk about, to uh, you about you i've got uh 10 books in print at this point and uh, my first two were best of collections out of those 450 weekly columns that i wrote and uh that in, encouraged me to keep going on the book thing and i was um in addition to being managing editor i was garden editor of the mountain express and although I had other writers, I wrote a lot of the garden columns. And so I finally did a, a garden book about um, uh, organic gardening. And that's still, that's been a continual seller along the way because that doesn't age particularly. In 05, I learned that the Underground Asheville Guidebook, which was kind of a culty guidebook, I mean, uh, that Tom Kerr had published for several years. Boy, he put money into that thing. It, I mean, it had gilt on the edges of the pages. I mean, it was really expensive. I don't mm. know how he made any money at all on it. But um, Emika Bratz, who owns Malaprops, told me that, that that was going out of print. And it took me about an hour to go, oh, the main guidebook to Asheville is going out of print. I wonder if I should write a guidebook to Asheville. Right, yeah, yeah. And so I, I started, I, I wrote one in 2005, and the uh, 10th anniversary one, I, I updated it every two years. And I, I did a 10th anniversary in 2015, and that honestly has been my best-selling book. Of It was actually the best-selling guidebook to Asheville for a number of years. It's really felt fallen off now. People are using their cell phones, and I mean, no one's the whole, buying books. I mean, yeah, yeah, that changed. I buy books for my daughter, so she reads books, right? But that's it, you right? Know? I mean, I and I buy books for me because I like reading books. I do not. I spend enough time looking at my phone and my computer. Yeah, that yeah. if I'm gonna read, I like to actually read a book, and it feels yeah. good, and I like turning the pages, and I like seeing the, you know, the thin section of the book move past the midway <laughs> you know right. i can i can feel that i'm prog progressing and right right as well as uh as groucho mark said outside of a dog a book is man's best friend inside of a dog it's too dark to read you know <laughs> <laughs> and so then i wrote a, a book about um the sheriff that i had um i really my my main score as a reporter like it's like my shining star was putting Sheriff Bobby Medford in prison here. He was really crooked and nobody was going after him. And uh, I did, I pursued him and, and 
that that's another sec- separate story. But I wrote that book, and I, at the same time, I had gotten a tip about. Well, it was actually from Associated Press. Billy Graham in two thousand two uh, was heard on a Nixon White House tape saying he was going to do something about the Jews, uh, that he and Nixon could do something about the Jews. And I thought, whoa, this is not what we think Billy Graham does. So I wrote a political biography of Billy Graham that it took five years, three interns, travel all over the country to presidential libraries and the Graham archives in Evanston, Illinois, and all that stuff. That That was a major push, and that's the one that made me famous. And not because the book was so good, it didn't. <laughs> I mean, it's it's okay. I mean, I, I, I'm proud of it. I, mean, I think it's accurate and all that stuff. But when I was running for city council in 09, um, I won the, the primary. There were 10 of us in the primary. And the way it works here, every two years, three seats are up for election on city council. Mm-hmm. And the mayor is in one of those. Like this year, the mayor is up for election and three seats. Um, and so with 10 people running for council, and I came in first in the primary, and that really upset some local conservative people who did not like where I stand on things. So they seized on something I had said in the afterword to the Billy Graham book. I wanted to make it clear to people because I need to be honest. I said, this is a political biography, but for what it's worth, I don't believe in supernatural beings of any stripe. That was the only time I had ever taken any position publicly about my atheism. Mm. I, I, to me, it's our until today questions are faith. <laughs> well, well, uh, <laughs> no, I'm sure there've been several instances since. Well, then, yeah. that's what happened. Uh, they yeah. they immediately published a letter, which we think went to every voter over the age of 50 in Asheville. My opponents did, telling that I was an atheist and that um, I was going to take Asheville to hell. And then a second letter followed shortly before the election in November that uh, said that I had said that Billy Graham was influenced by Adolf Hitler. And, and that was actually kind of funny. Uh, on election day, uh, a guy came up to my campaign manager and said, I'm not voting for Bothwell. He's, he said Billy was influenced by Adolf Hitler. And she said, have you read the book? He said, don't have to. Right, of course. Uh, I have an opinion. Why do said, I need well, facts? She said, well, I have. And he did say that, but he quoted it from Billy Graham's autobiography. Yeah, who wrote that? <laughs> that would be <laughs> Billy Graham. <laughs> and he did. Billy Graham said that he watched video, and that's all I reported. He watched Adolf Hitler in the, in movies. It wasn't even video back then. It was movies. To watch how he controlled crowds, even though he didn't understand German. He learned how to manipulate crowds in, mm. his, in his crusades, partly by watching how Adolf Hitler worked crowds. That's what I reported. Okay. Well... Then I was elected. I, I came in first in the primary, but third in the general. And I think that probably that letter, probably those letters had some effect. Sure, it sounds like they. But when I went to be sworn in, another fella uh, tried to block my being sworn in because the North Carolina Constitution then and now says you can't hold public office if you shall deny the being of Almighty God. How is that possible? Now, well, it, it wouldn't stand up if it ever got to the Supreme Court because it violates the separation of church and state in, yeah, in the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. But it's still there. That sort of thing was in a lot of state constitutions. And unless it's ever been actually challenged and thrown out 
or unless there's been a constitutional convention and had it removed, it remains there. Well, Rachel Maddow picked up on that, and oh I got goodness. my 15 minutes of fame. I was interviewed by the LA Times and the New York Times. The story appeared in the Chicago Tribune and the Portland Oregonian, and in the second week of December 2009, if I Googled my name plus the word atheist, it claimed hundreds of thousands of hits in eight languages around the world. Wow. It had gotten into the blogosphere. Subsequent to that, I started getting invitations, and I have now spoken in 25 cities in 12 states to atheist, humanist, different groups all over from here to Denver, Minnesota, Florida. Uh, my book started selling. It was like... Everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was It was the, it was the, the only... The cause of any extensive kind of fame I have, and I know it's not a big deal, but it made me a, a, a successful writer at that point that I had not been before. I mean, I, I'd been hired as a reporter and an editor, you know, and I sold a few books, right. but that was the deal. Um, and since then, I've published four more books um, on different subjects. But it was thanks to people who hated on me that... Uh, and maybe that's another way of failing upward. Well, it speaks to it, it speaks to the uh, cliche that there's no such thing as bad publicity. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's. I believe that yeah. deeply. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like when they when they picketed uh, the Last Temptation of Christ, and then there was another movie that they picketed also, and suddenly everyone went to see it. It was like yeah, those things pop it, up from, from yeah. But there was a there was a film that probably would have gone mostly unnoticed. But they made a big fuss about it, and then everyone's like, "Oh, well, we got to see this," you know. Right, right, yeah. Um, and it happens every once in a while with a, a musical group that does something, you know. When when John Lennon said they were more popular, suggested that they were more popular than Jesus, uh, there were lots of uh, Beatles albums burned, and their popularity rose even higher. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. With the Flames. Yeah. The, well, those guys were destined. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. they, you know they worked really hard. Like there was a pretty sure cool movie did. about the Beatles called Backbeat. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it was about their time in Berlin when they were just a club band playing, you know, U.S. rhythm and blues, and 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 just try, just another band, right? You know, before right. they really started writing their own stuff, and they were just they were playing eight hours a day, like they were just getting worked to the bone. But that's how they became the Beatles. Was yeah. Putting yeah. in their ten thousand hours. I, I, I thought Ron Howard did a fairly good job. In, I mean, it's a more popularized version than that recent movie. Yeah, I haven't Beatles. seen it. it. I heard it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, it really. I it. I mean, I lived through it. I, I mean, I was, um, again, born in nineteen fifty, so I'm only a few years younger than than say uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon. So I, I witnessed. I'm probably five years younger, whatever. I, I witnessed that in, right. in in real time, and I learned a lot about that that I didn't know. I mean, about their careers. Yeah, that sure. It wasn't apparent for as a fan in the, in those days. Ron Howard is good. I mean, if he makes a movie, chances are it's worth seeing. Like he just doesn't yeah. have he doesn't have too many flops to his credit. Right. You know, and, Something about growing up in the industry probably has uh, has some benefits. It's true. I mean, I, there was a great in right interview <laughs> with him on uh, WTF with Mark Marin, which is one of my favorite podcasts to mm -hmm. listen to, and and they really talked about. His history, and I think his dad was an actor, and um, I forget now because I listen to so many podcasts, I don't remember all the details, but if if you ever want to learn more about Ron Howard, that's a great interview. Okay, uh, yeah. Because um, he really kind of goes back and explains a, a lot of things, including 
one of my favorite bits of trivia is the whole, have you heard of the phrase jumping the shark? When it, yeah. So that comes from Happy Days. Oh, really? Because after <laughs> Ron Howard left Happy Days, there was like one or two seasons without him. And Fon- the show really centered around Fonzie more. Right. And during one episode, Fonzie ju- was going to jump a shark on his motorcycle. And it was such a ridiculous idea and so stupid and it failed so badly that now when any show gets to a point that it does, you know, tries something outrageous just to succeed and fails, they call yeah. it jumping the shark. Right. And it real so it came from that show, right. which was really my favorite story out of the whole podcast. Because right. that's such a thing. Like people talk about jumping the shark out in any walk of life, you know. Right. Right. When anything sort of peaks and and yeah. and fails. So um Along the way, uh, since we're talking about where I came from, and yeah, all, please. I, uh, I think one of the most formative experiences in my life was being in Boy Scouts. And at the time, I don't know how what, how Boy Scouts are today, but I know my experience of it. It really got me involved in the natural world. And uh, I very quickly... Uh, earned all the merit badges that were related to the natural world, uh, uh, bird study, reptile study, conservation, soil and water conservation, nature merit badge, insect life, reptiles, na- reptile, whatever. So I, I, I did all those and then I became a counselor as I was older in a scout camp, in a summer camp, and was teaching other people about nature and the world. And and that got me started in a in a very profound way to be connected to the world, to the natural world. And so as I got older and had a place to, to put things in the ground, um, I, I grew things like five-leaved plants that one might have smoked. But I grew a lot of... Uh, <laughs> Tobacco. I, <laughs> I grew a lot of uh, vegetables. And I've really been an organic gardener now for, for over 45 years. Um and that whole idea of feeding the soil, and, and if you feed the soil, the soil feeds you, and recognizing the nutrient cycles that go on, began to connect me to the environment, and I became an, an environmental activist. I worked with the Clamshell Alliance in New Hampshire to try to stop a nuclear power plant that was built on a fault there. Um, and that was the first kind of really public, really uh, political engagement for me. And in that same period, I worked for Jerry Brown. He ran for president in, 20, in uh, 1976. Uh, the Jerry Brown campaign began to get involved in politics. Um, because of that nuke, I moved off the grid. That's when I bought solar panels, built a cabin, and disconnected from the system that was building the nuclear power plant. Right. Now, over the course of my life, I've lived off, I've lived on solar power for about 30, 34 or five years altogether. My house today, although I'm in town, is a grid-connected, solar-powered house that uh, I generate more power than I use. You sell uh, it back to the... I sell it back, yeah. 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 So basically, I sell it to the power company during the day and buy it back at night. It's hmm. uh, Batteries are, are were very problematic. They're getting better now. But that has informed my worldview. I started at a recycling program where I lived in Black Mountain. I was in kind of a rural area and there wasn't even trash collection there, but I got all the neighbors to start putting their stuff in bins and I would take it to the recyclers. And um, and it leads to me to today, 
and um, well, even starting in the early '90s, I understood what Al Gore was writing about and and um, about uh, global climate change, and and have worked against that to the best I, of my ability. I truly believe that climate change it represents an existential threat to the human race. I, it's certainly to civilization. When um, when climate goes again, this goes back to my gardening and farming experiments. Food production disappears. I mean, you farmers depend intrinsically on a, a continuity of climate, and when we see all the, the famine that's going on in Africa right now, it's partly political and partly because of war, but it's it's a great deal due to drought, and we are not so far away from that. We used to have enough food in the United States, for instance. We had we had uh, grain silos that actually we were storing food for that would have covered another year or two of our food demand. Mm. We've eliminated those due to cost. The big corporations like just-in-time delivery. They want to sell this year's crop this year. So we don't even have a backdrop of food in our country. And around the world, that's, that's often very true. If the weather goes south, we are in really, really deep trouble. And so to me, addressing climate change underlies my decision tree on everything I think about. I think that we need to get people out of their cars. That's part of the reason I'm a strong supporter of transit because the biggest thing a city can do to reduce the carbon output is to get people out of their cars. We can't tell people what to do with their houses. We might be able to help with insulation and stuff, but if we can get more people out of their cars, we're gonna make a bigger cut. I believe um, the things we're doing at the city level, um, I was a big supporter of we changed out all our streetlights in, in Asheville to LED streetlights. Right. That's an amazing difference. I mean, we're saving three hundred sixty-five thousand a year in electric bills, and that means that's that. And what that says is we're burning that much less coal to light our streets. Right. Um, I was the principal advocate for the big blue single stream recycling bins. By by uh, recycling that material, we're cutting the carbon footprint of the waste stream because that material is being reused we're cutting the amount of material that gets taken to the dump uh, which cuts our tipping fees there and we're about to we're, we're working on finding a way to do roadside um, composting to start taking people's food scraps which represent the largest portion of our garbage by weight we're already recycling or, or composting a lot of the restaurant food scraps in Asheville hmm. um, but so every time I think about a problem that I, I hope to help solve at the city level, I'm trying to think in terms of the global level, how does it affect climate change? How does it affect our carbon output over over the years? And I'm I, I, I'm actually quite fearful. I mean, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think we can make a difference. I think we can make this this thing work, this thing we call civilization. But at the same time, at the rate that things are warming, uh, the Gulf Stream, no, the Jet Stream, rather, um, just two weeks ago, I saw a report that they've now calculated that the Jet Stream has, has gone into a whole new cycle where it wobbles north to south much more, big, wider swings than it used to make up toward the Arctic. And what they're predicting from that is that we're going to see longer droughts and longer inundations. So we're going to get a lot more really, really heavy rains and then a lot longer periods of no rain. Right. That begins to affect the food supply. The um, the USDA has said that our we have these. Um, there are climate. If if you look at a seed packet, 
uh, and it, look at when to plant the seeds. It'll show you which band you're in. That like you know you're in this five, four, three, two, which which uh, climatic area you're in, and that tells you what, when you can put the seeds in the ground. You know, it's based right. on when the frost date is. That's those those bands are moving north very quickly. Um, about two days a year, the frost cycle has been moving for about ten years now. It moving north about two days per year. As as the winters begin to lessen and the summers begin to lengthen, it it, it cannot help but affect the growing of food, which underlies our entire civilization. Right. And to me, that's an extremely frightening thing. It's not, it, I think it's more important than the ocean. I mean, the ocean rise will affect Miami and well, all the cities on the coasts. But if you're in a city on the coast, you can move inland. But if you move inland and you don't have food, it doesn't make any difference. Well, also, so. <laughs> yeah, well, you're talking about the rise of the oceans because there's other issues going on in the ocean that yeah. are equally... Acidification. Yeah, and, I mean, the, the, I mean, yeah. the, there's less... We we thrive on the life forms that are in the ocean. Yeah, we're mining the ocean. Yeah, right? we're mining, yeah, and it's, and it's disappearing quickly. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I, you know, uh, my daughter was incidental. She was not a planned child. I'm thrilled that I have her. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. Makes my life better in every thinkable way. Uh, but it's important to me that I only have one. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, her mom would have had more if, you know, if she had her wish. She would have liked Sula to have a brother or sister. And my and she comes from a family you know, where she had four siblings and all of her parents had four or five uh, you know, there were four or five of them going up generations, which means whenever I, I don't go anymore because we're not together. But when I would go to family events, there'd be a hundred people there. Whoa! You know, I mean, you go to a family event in my family, there's eight people. <laughs> there's just no, there's just no people in my family. Yeah, and yeah. one or two kids. You know, and for several generations, and that really catches up. So, but it's important to me because you know the way you think of climate change. I don't think we're going to disagreeing or anything. I think of population density. Oh like, yeah, you know. It's, well, that's what's driving right. so much. Of yeah, the right. Other. I mean, yeah. it's right. So yeah. if I just I always go back to there's just too many people. Yep. And when there's less people, which there will be, then you know, then uh, it'll be a little easier. It'll be a little more sustainable. Now, you know, there's plenty of people who feel like, well, no, this the Earth has enough resources for all of us. That may be true. They certainly the resources are not uh, allocated evenly or right. fairly or even wisely you know there it's economically driven and you know all kinds of decisions like grocery stores throw away something like 45 percent of their food because they're forced to keep all the shelves stocked because nobody buys the last cucumber right you know right. they'll buy the same cucumber if it's one of a hundred but if it's the only <laughs> cucumber left they won't buy it right and so you know that's creates an epidemic of food being thrown away and then there's a whole health thing where they're not allowed to donate the food right for whatever reasons although the trader joe's somehow whenever you find a whenever they find a cracked egg they donate the entire dozen to a food to the mana food bank oh wow yeah That's... i'm like why don't you just take out the egg and swap it out with the good one they're like ah we'd rather just donate it they get some free eggs we get the tax right off everybody wins 
Well, I'm like, there's uh, something to be said for that. That's it is. Bad. It also drives up the cost of my eggs. <laughs> That's the other part. <laughs> you know, I mean, but Trader Joe's in, isn't taking the hit on that. I am. You're indirectly <laughs> subsidizing Mana Food Bank. So right. Which, and I'm all for right, Mana right Food off Bank. on your taxes. Yeah, I should. <laughs> yeah. Every time I go to Trader Joe's, I'm taking a 15% tax tax cut. I think you're so entirely right there. About, I mean, the population is the, is the issue. And um, I read uh, Paul Ehrlich's The uh, Population Bomb in the around 19... 19- 70 um i don't remember the exact publication date it had to be in the late 60s i guess and he was wrong about the timing but he i think he was right about what what has happened uh he didn't foresee that the so-called green revolution would enable us to divert fossil fuels into fertilizer to grow more food which has allowed the population to get bigger than he thought it would ever get oh i see yeah yeah but because we use natural gas to make nitrogen fertilizer um but I decided in 1971, before I got married, I had a vasectomy. I decided I didn't that you I was gonna not going to the population do at all. that. Yeah. Uh, and my then wife um, remarried and had a couple of kids, and more power to her. I'm I, I'm not anti-child, but I think we really do need. In fact, today I heard China has reversed its one-child policy, and the story I heard today on the radio, in fact, was that. Um, a lot of women who have who had means in China during the one-child policy had their embryos frozen, mm. um, and they're now being implanted, and they're having second babies. Mm. And I'm thinking, whoa, no, you know, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, a lot. Of, so I spent some time in China because I used yeah. to have my product made there. Oh, now okay. it's made in America. All right, you're but, right. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a part of the solution. And then because I had a really dark night of the soul, you can read all about it. As uh, I wrote a blog about you know this moment that I was taking a boat from mainland China back to the Hong Kong airport, and I was passing through this highly polluted inlet, mm-hmm. and the boats people were living on these boats and fishing out of these waters, and the boats were black, just mm. black as tar. Every single one of them, just mm. from pollution. Yeah. And, and you know, lack of upkeep. And this people are living full time on these boats and fishing in these waters. And, <sighs> you know, and I was just like, and I'm coming over here to make a foam yoga product for a bunch of overprivileged people who have the luxury of doing yoga. I was like, I am a part of the problem. Like it was Whoa. a, it was a really awful day. I and bet. this is after spending two weeks in the factory sucking down pollution and like, you know, yeah. Just being miserable in many, many different ways and under a lot of pressure and everything else. Well, it has to be one of those moments. It really was. Yeah. It, yeah, it was really one of those moments. I was yeah. like, I, I don't know if I can live with myself if I continue doing this. And so it took me a little while, but I ultimately moved my manufacturing here and we now make a, it's the same foam, but there's a biodegradable additive. So the foam is designed to biodegrade only in a landfill. It won't biodegrade on your mat. Oh, good. It's not. It's not photodegradable. <laughs> right. Well, that's everyone's fear. Sure. Sure. You know. Yeah, well, you yeah. must have made it out of rice flour, and it's you know, and um, <laughs> so, uh, so it's just as durable. But right. when you throw it away, it'll biodegrade faster. Now, wow. there's issues with that because the the plastic is breaking down faster and emitting the gases into the environment at a faster rate that's harder for the environment to absorb. I mean, there's really no win. You can't do one thing. Yeah, it's, it, right. It, but it's but yeah. I but I do feel like it's a step in the right direction. Sure. My carbon footprint went from shipping things around literally halfway around the world right. 
especially because they'd go through Panama. Um, so oh, wow. literally halfway yeah. around the world to from start to finish, the phone travels five hours from my warehouse. From start to finish, from from the initial fabrication of the materials, mm -hmm. it moves to a different facility where they turn it into an egg, and then it ships to me. Mm -hmm. And that happens, you know, a five-hour drive. It used to be a five-hour drive just from the dock. Right. And that was after it had made the, the rest of the, cycle. the, the trip from, from yeah. China over here. And then I sell a lot of my product to Asia. I'm huge in Japan. So right. I, was, I would make the eggs in China, ship them here, and then ship them back to Japan. That was totally nuts. <laughs> so now we just ship everything. You know, we do right. still ship to Japan, but but we do it. Sure. You know. Uh, well, it's it's the whole global economy is very complicated in that way. Very I mean, complicated. It's. it's yeah. um, I just saw a, a short documentary about corn, for instance, and it's amazing how NAFTA, for instance, is has put the corn farmers in Mexico out of work because we're shipping cheap corn to Mexico. And so they go out of work and they come here to work on the farms. Right. That's crazy. <laughs> to I was going to say, that goes to it's only cheaper here because we're employing Mexican labor, illegal, right. illegal Mexican labor. Right. That's right. nuts. That's great. That's perfect. That's just, that is the, <laughs> that is the corn equivalent of my foam story. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. And when I said eggs, that's what I call my foam product. Yeah. Not, not a, an actual egg. Yeah. I um, got that. Well, cause Cause I was talking about Trader Joe's eggs a few minutes ago. Right, so right. I want to be sure crack. that, yeah. Right. My eggs don't crack. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you probably buy them one at a time. Uh, actually you buy, you know, you buy, you know, two to a six, dozen? you know, you oh. know, we sell them by the dozen for <laughs> okay. studios. Yeah, absolutely. We're all in the, we're all about that. <laughs> So, but that really a half dozen is the perfect for yeah. know, amount for one person. Does that mean you have to like break some eggs to make real yoga? Is it? <laughs> yeah, right. To make a yoga omelet or something. I don't know. It's in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So I I remember. Okay, so here, so China. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons they're changing that policy in China is that none of the Chinese people want to work in the factories anymore. Right. The Chinese people want to have middle class jobs like the rest of us. Right. And so there isn't enough domestic labor to fuel the economy. So right. they have to bring people in from other countries, which they do. Right. The people working in my factory, now I didn't own it, but the factory that made my product in China, they were from Burma and Vietnam. Right. And, uh, I forget there was another country where they oh Cambodia um and so a lot of them were coming from there they're totally exploited yeah and I don't know about abused but probably not far from it right and then uh and then the Chinese so there's a couple things going on here which you're an interesting person to tell this to because you know one is they don't have enough local labor anymore right uh, the other is they need people to fuel their economy. I mean, every economy, the problem with economies is they all require growth. Yeah. You have to have uh, more and more people to sell your products to for the economy to grow. You can't, you cannot have homeostasis, if that's the right word, in an economic model and have it survive. Right. That would like emulate nature. <laughs> right. It won't work with money. Yeah. Right. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, it's, it's. Um, but even nature, you know, we like to think nature's perfect, and it is in a in a macro way. 
But if you're the tree that gets burned down or if you're the beaver that's without a home sure. after there's a forest fire sure. or a flood, you know, you can be negatively impacted. Right. But, a, but what I was thinking was in the macro way, the, the total mass of living uh, cells on Earth has not changed since the last ice age. We, I mean, there right. are more cattle and less mammoths now. Right. But, right, right, right. But, but it's, so, I mean, it, it's, it's the same it is, tonnage. <laughs> It is a zero sum uh, at the macro level, right? But we don't see that we don't we we don't have we haven't figured out how to do that with an economy, like you say. So we want to keep it growing, 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 which means taking more and more and more of the natural world. Over half the fresh water on Earth has been diverted for human use now. Mm. That's I mean we we're using it. Yeah, we're major consumer. <laughs> we are major consumers of everything. It's 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 nuts that we think that we can consume the way we do forever. Right. Like, right. that's just so not possible. And, you know, every once in a while I see something, it's like we have, you know, we have cut down and burned more forests in the last 50 years than we had in the last 50,000 years. Right. right. And we've done more, what, you know, whatever, all these different statistics that just show the obvious impact of population sure. on the planet. And even riding my bike through beautiful Weaverville today. I was riding and I was like, wow, it's amazing. Every time I see a housing development, I'm like, well, they had to cut down a lot of trees for that. Oh, yeah. It's not like that was a bald mountain area. And they said, oh, we'll build it here because there's already no trees. <laughs> they clear cut that thing and <laughs> right. put in, you know, whatever high end housing thing, which now, according to you, they're having trouble selling. Theoretically. They're beginning, yeah, I mean, that's, it's hitting that market. Now. Yeah. And they probably sold the trees to be chipped to be sent to China. Because we're selling our wood chips to China these days. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. The what wood chips in the southeast. Uh, paper is the main thing. Paper, oh. cardboard. Oh. Yeah, they make terrible paper products in China. Like when oh, I yeah. used to get my, I used to get my boxes made in China. Yeah. Now they're made here, <laughs> and they were like these soft, like mushy. Just you just felt like I've they were not going to last very long. The, the, the I've cardboard. seen them when I ordered something online uh, that it came in one of those yeah. things. It was like, eh. Yeah, no, the boxes I get now, they're all made, again, everything's made nearby. You know, my boxes are made an hour away. And they're really high quality, really high density, really uh, right. thin. Right. And, but just as, they have the same uh, burst strength or whatever they measure yeah. boxes yeah. in. So, so in here's fact, what happened in China. <laughs> the, uh, they had to import all this labor. Right. And, and it's all uneducated labor. Right, obviously. Yeah. People with educations aren't get aren't choosing jobs in factories. There's a lot of a huge amount of unemployment in China. Like I was amazed how many people were standing around doing nothing all the time. And there's just so many freaking people, man. That's like right. it's right. Uh, India too. I mean, it's just, I remember when I came back here from India, I was driving from my house to downtown. I was like, there is so much wasted space here. Like if we were in India, there would be families living in every acre between me and downtown Asheville. Like I was amazed at how different our relationship is with space right here than there. Oh, certainly you know. so. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's um when you mentioned that the, the that that's the driver for the two two child policy that they they're recognizing they're going to need more labor. It reminds and me and more consumers. And more consumers. Um it it Reminds me of the Catholic Church, which, um, you know, forever has been opposed to family planning of any sort. Um, I mean, they've gradually softened 
they certainly are still totally anti-abortion, but yeah. they've gradually. The new pope is pretty. He's pretty yeah, progressive. Pretty progressive, but the the basic policy has always been make babies, make babies, make make more Catholics. Right. Um, and I, I often wondered whether that was driven by the fact that they're the largest property owner in the world, and or they were. I don't know if they are today, but they were. The that institution hold you know holds more property than and, and therefore they have an intrinsic interest in the economy and therefore having more consumers and more workers was central to their uh, financial planning hmm. i mean we they can they they construe it as a moral choice but it certainly worked to their benefit uh, in an economic sense well, I go to a really weird place with all this stuff. Yeah. So you can help rein me in, okay? Maybe. <laughs> um, I find myself expressing views that I'm not particularly proud of. Or I don't always express them. A lot of times I keep them to myself. Because You're aging. It's, it's, I'm what? <laughs> You're aging. I'm aging, yeah. I'm aging so I'm not I'm feeling views that I shouldn't be proud of or <laughs> learning not to say them all out loud. Uh, or both. Both, probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we uh, we change our worldview as we get older, too. And, and experience experience suggests things to us that we might not have that when we were young and idealistic might have seemed realistic but as we get older we end up with i think uh beginning to to shape our our views based on that experience yeah, yeah. well right so and so sometimes our younger self inside is looking at our older self and going, "What are you doing?" Man? Yeah, dude, dude, <laughs> not cool. So, what, what? Okay, confession. What, what okay. are you confessing well, so, to so now? So it starts oh. in China. Okay. Okay. So you have these a very uneducated working class from other countries because the Chinese don't have enough Chinese people who w want to do this kind of work. Right. And as a result, there's a shortage of labor which means the laborers get to choose the kind of work they want to do they get they get to choose whether or not they want to do the job like in my case you had we've changed the process now but there were some processes involved in making our eggs that were very messy and no one wanted to do it we only found one factory that was willing to do it because they, they were the only ones who were hiring people from countries who were willing to do it you know but these guys would charge a lot of money to do this undesirable work. And it just made a lot of foam dust. It wasn't like they were lifting heavy things and you know, foam is foam. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of it before it's heavy. But <laughs> uh and it was funny, you know, you'd see what where you'd see people moving things on a forklift here. Back there they were moving them on these carts with people pushing them from two ends. Like it was such a different technology base back there. Everything's just human beings moving things around as opposed to machines, you know, two to three people doing something that here you do one, one person with a machine all day could get it all done and never be tired except right. from sitting too long. Right. Right. Anyway. So n nobody wanted to make my product. They weren't having fun. So in order to find people to do it, the people who said they would do it anytime they could walk away and I'd be screwed. So they raise their price to the factory. The factory raised their price to me. Meanwhile, the quality is going down. Hmm. So I'm paying more for a lesser quality object. And so are my customers. Or they're paying the same amount for a lesser quality. Right. And I'm just 
slowly going out of business. <laughs> but right. uh, and and this was happening every time I went. I would go there to try and help them make it better, and they would make it worse. Like it, it was just amazing to me. I worked in the factory side by side for six weeks with these guys, and I I teach them how to do it in the afternoon. I come in the next morning. They'd invented new errors to make. But they'd made it times a thousand because they would get up early in the morning and be very industrious doing things wrong, and oh, and yeah, it was awful. And then I'd correct them and I'd be I'd send them back to they'd have to redo it, you know. And then they hated me. I don't blame them at that point, except right, that right. I did teach them how to do it right. But right. they're not capable of learning it because they're just, you know, their their learning skills for the most part. They're just not developed because they're not educated. Right, right. On a profound level, they're not educated. My engineer, who's amazing, he would say, you know, he'd say, Jason, you know, they're not, you can't think of them as people. Wow. He said, you have to think of them as dogs. Like, can you imagine your dog doing this job? That's how stupid these people are. He's like, he's a dog. He's a pig, you know. Phew. I mean, it was, it was, it was brutal for me to hear it. Right. But after witnessing it in action for a while, I started to understand his point. I didn't I didn't feel he was expressing it in the most compassionate, nonviolent way <laughs> like we do in Asheville or right. I think we do, but but I started to see his point, you know. And and so one day he's right. like You're here we'd say there's an underachiever. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then some. So it was really really interesting and and so here's like the complexity of a global economy we're very quick in the u.s to say things like oh they're underpaying their workers that's not okay right so we force china to pay people more money and one of the byproducts is two two byproducts one is they have to cut expenses somewhere one of the places they cut it is environmental concern not that there's a whole lot of right. environmental concern to begin with over there so, you know, if they have to pay people more money, then they have to, you know, pollute a little more because they don't have time to clean up in the same way. And the other thing that happens is China becomes actually not so cheap to make things anymore. And so now the labor moves to another country, Vietnam, right. where they, we, they don't have the environmental restrictions that we're trying to impose on China. And they certainly don't have the labor considerations that we're trying to impose on China and they don't have the wage considerations that we're trying to impose on China. So we don't solve the problem, we just move, move. the problem. We move the problem, yeah. And now we have a major power which is China that owns a lot of our country, you know, we owe a lot of money to China. And now they have power over us and we're screwing them over. We're causing them to collapse. If they collapse, that's not going to be so good for us. No, like, I remember hearing, a, I think he was one of the member of the Joint Chiefs or a former member several years ago said that if we ever went to war with China, they would simply defund our military. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's perfect. That is we've, perfect. We've borrowed a lot of money there. Yeah, yeah, that's hysterical. So... You know, so yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. You're um, you're you're driven to a view that my father might have embraced about the world, a, a conservative, old style view of the world, where people are are not equal. 
that, that that's not an equal worker to us. I mean, we want being enlightened modern Americans. We like to think everybody needs can everybody with an equal chance can do equally. You know, I mean, given some differences in ability, but still, everyone. But you, but you're saying what you experienced there was the lack of of everything going the lack of education probably the dietary things sure, all, all kinds of, of it, things yeah, that right. ended up with with workers who were apparently unable or, or unwilling or whatever i mean they just they couldn't get with the program right and and we expect here that everybody given a chance can get with the program right exactly yeah and yeah. so in one view that those are dogs they're pigs they're you know or, or or we call them underachievers it happens here too i mean the, the um one of the reasons i think that people are trapped in poverty is frequently because not only do they lack the education the dietary piece is a big one huge right and then there's the social piece so that people who are living in in um public housing for instance for three or four generations They've got all those factors working. They've got an example of others that are not achievers in their lives. Right. They've got a poor diet. They've got a lack of, of uh, like one of the things about schooling, the reason year-round schools apparently work in some places to improve education is that poor kids don't have books and magazines and any other enrichment in their homes. Mm. So in the summertime, they lose what they had for three three quarters of the year. Right. And and then they fall back, and they they end up a half a year behind in the in September. But it all of those factors help to create an underclass. It's almost like in a science fiction story where there's uh, proles or something who the worker, the the the, the stupid workers who who are le less than human, and then the ruling class that right. and all that sort of thing. And, it, and it's very it's real. I mean, it really is. Ha it really does happen, and it's not because you're an evil conservative old man now. No, I don't think I am because I'm. I mean, I I don't. I'm not happy about it. Like this is just right. what I witnessed happening. Yeah, it's not like I'm like, well, so fuck them, you know. I mean, that's, that's not right. that's not where I go with it. Yeah. Although what I did do was I pulled my manufacturing out of China. I brought it here, but as a result, I mean, in some ways, it's not that much more money. Like. At the end of the day, my landed cost, as, as the term goes, you know, what does it cost me to finally get my product in my warehouse ready to sell? Mm -hmm. The truth is my landed cost isn't that much more because my volume was low enough over there. You know, with a much higher volume, I could have gotten a better deal. My volume was low enough that I could only get so good a deal on the product. Right. And then, plus I'm paying a lot in shipping, you know, and I would ship a 20-foot container instead of a 40-foot container. A 40-foot container only costs another $2,000 to ship. Out of, instead of 5000 it's seven, right? But that's only 40% again as much. Right. So you'd be saving, you know, overall 30% if I could, 30% if on shipping if I could yeah. afford to ship more, right? And so if I'm buying bigger volume, so it all, it all adds up. Right. And it's so, why Walmart can sell cheaper because their main distribution center is in China these days, and they can fill lots of forty-foot containers. Yeah, they, they can fill boats. They <laughs> right. can fill ships. Yeah, you know, and then they get a really good deal. Yeah, really. You think you get a good deal on one forty-foot container? You should try a hundred forty-foot containers. <laughs> it's really true. I mean, that is really yeah. what happens, and yeah. so you know, then you end up with a business like mine where it's a struggle 
because I'm trying to make all the right decisions. Right. I mean, I may have sounded like a conservative for a moment a couple minutes ago, but truthfully, I couldn't live with myself that way. Right. So I brought the manufacturing back home where it cost me more to make it. Not a ton more, thankfully, because of all the things I just described. Right. But it does cost me more. And my customers, they don't want to pay more. Right. It they makes you very prey to somebody doing a knockoff in China or in Vietnam. Right. And underselling you. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I have, you know, some IP protection that will prevent some of that. But... Uh, but for sure, I mean, I'm not protected in every country in the world. Right. You know. Right. And it's definitely, you know, if somebody were to buy my company, which I hope they do, the first thing they will do is move the manufacturing back overseas. That will be their first order of business. Wow. Because for them, they'll be like, we can save 20 cents a piece. And you know what? We want that 20 cents a piece. And we can, and yeah. we're going to pump, you know. $20 million in this thing, so we can afford several 40-foot containers. We're going to be able to get the volume up, the manufacturing cost down, the shipping cost down. It's going to be worth it to them because they're going to think – they're going to make a business decision. Right. And, and the if business some decision, Burmese people die in the Chinese factory, they don't really care. Yeah, if they're jumping out because they're <laughs> sick of making eggs, uh, they don't – yeah, they don't care. That's yeah. a, that's a, that is a cost of doing business that really is on the factories ledger and not theirs and so it's very very hard to make ethical decisions that are also good economic decisions right it's very very difficult and i just choose to make the ethical decisions and sure deal with the financial consequences <laughs> i i just hit one of those conundrums i i still do some construction these days mostly it's small scale i do some repairs and things i haven't built a a major addition for about four years now um and but i still i i patronize big box lumber yards because that's where you get stuff i mean in fact it's hard it's hard to find building materials outside of lowe's and home depot, and yeah, home right. depot. Yeah. so during the election campaign last summer i learned that the owner the, the founder of home depot was a trump supporter and so I quit going to Home Depot completely. I mm. completely quit going there, and I've patronized Lowe's for those needs for eight months. Uh, yesterday I learned that Lowe's and Walmart have been caught using slave labor in South America. <laughs> mm. And, okay, so I, I can go back to the misogynist, uh, uh, fascist Home Depot people. <laughs> <laughs> and leave the slave labor people at Lowe's. Yeah, it's like who, it's, you have to choose your evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 terribly tangled, really terribly tangled. Yeah, my my thing. I don't know if this is going to come to pass or not, but I remember when Trump was elected, and a lot of the people who elected him were less educated. Not exclusively. He got plenty of educated people who somehow thought he was a good idea, mm -hmm. but. I think among the um, pockets of people that helped push him over, push him over the top, because it wasn't everyone like when it happened. People were like, "Oh, it was the minorities. Oh, it was this." It, was, it wasn't any one group that helped him win. Right, it was a right. a lot of little bits and pieces that that added up and moved him, you know, into victory. And certainly, but those without a college education were a significant factor. Um, 
percentage of his voters. Right. And one of the things he said was, I'm going to bring back those kinds of low-level jobs, you know, to help those people. Now, let he's probably not going to do that, but let's pretend he did do that. You know, let's pretend he follows through on that. You know, to me, it looks like he's trying to create a large lower middle class or a large working class. I don't know what you call that. I don't right. know what the name is for that group. I'm not well-versed enough in our caste system. Yeah. But he wants to create a large group of those people. And the byproduct of that will be a very small number of the upper echelon people who are making all the money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and yet somehow these poor people are voting for him and his compadres because they're creating jobs for them as opposed to, you know, a lot of the decisions that I'm not, I don't know if I'm opposed to them or for them, but a lot of decisions, you know, NAFTA and things like that, that I think did impact our labor pool and our factories and things like that. Right. I and mean, right. we lost some factory jobs, but you know what? Factory jobs suck. Like nobody wants to work in a factory. You end up working in a factory when you don't have other options at your disposal because of the list of things that you gave earlier, maybe four generations and, you know, a, right. a, a lower income housing and, development. And post-World War II, up until the end of the 80s, um, factory jobs, even if they were unpleasant, had, had pretty good pay and pretty good uh uh, benefits and all. I mean, right. the union movement was strong enough that people ha had a strong middle class income working in factories. In fact, I knew one childless couple who would have been in my parents' generation. So these are people born in around 1920. Um, I knew this couple. They were actually had a million dollars. They were they were technically a millionaire couple wow. from both having factory jobs. Um, because the wages were good, they didn't have children, which saved them yeah. money, of course. And they and hey, they were thrifty. They saved, you know, they saved money over the time. But but now, uh, starting with Reagan, the union movement was crushed. Wages have stagnated since the 1980s, and um, and so a factory job is is not a big benefit in most places. The factories have moved within the United States from union states to non-union. That's the reason so many factories moved to the South. Mm. Because we had um, so-called right-to-work laws down right. here, which mean you have a right to be fired, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and unionization isn't it doesn't happen down here, and so um, th those 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 jobs that which once were acceptable because they paid well are now both unacceptable, and the only deal we got going, right? And, and people are happy to at least get the, you know, the eight bucks an hour. Uh, and to do the same thing all day. And robots are going to take that over. I mean, that's one of the things I think is going to be a, a huge disruptor, especially as I was talking earlier about the driverless vehicles. If we replace all those drivers, what on earth are those people going to do? I mean, what, Yeah. you know, we, we're talking about millions of people that are no longer needed. And they say, oh, well, there'll be other jobs. No, there won't be other jobs. I mean, we're, we're displacing because because the factories are roboticizing very quickly right you know um most uh, cars today a whole lot of the car assembly stuff is just completely automated you see these big machines that bolt yeah bolt, right bolt bolt yeah <laughs> you know? um and machines don't get pissy and leave their bologna sandwich in the door panel 
So <laughs> that's right. That's right. I mean, I, that was happening. Yeah, that was the sabotage. Yeah, that was happening within the American audio industry. Auto oh. industry. Audio. Right. Probably in the audio industry too. There might be in that Bose speaker. In the Bose speaker, there's a funny smell coming from the tweeter. Yeah, so, it's um, so. It, here's what I find complicated. Just so confusing about that is here you are, very progressive thinker, recognizing the problems of the economic divide and people being forced to move away from the center of town and to further and further away from town. So part of your solution to that, if I and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please stop me if I say the wrong thing. But part of your solution to that is driverless buses, because that will enable these people to get into town to no, come to work or for whatever reason they need to come to work. Enable us to afford more transit. Yeah. Enables us to afford more transit, which comes in the form of driverless buses. Right. That's, that's what, a piece that's of what it, affordable yeah. transit looks like. As I understand it, based on this conversation, not exclusively, but that's a that's a sounds like a factor. It's a big right? factor, right? And so, and then the byproduct of that, and you also you sound very concerned and sympathetic and empathetic about it. Is well, now what are we going to do with those jobs? Like, yeah, you know, those people are now going to be out of work. So, facilitating people who've had to move away from the center of town to come into town to work, or for whatever reason they're coming to town, but let's assume some of it's work. We're facilitating those jobs, but we're taking away these other jobs. Like, it is just, you know, now suddenly the progressive politician, the progressive thinker, is causing unemployment. That's not usually what would happen. Normally, a progressive thinker would be like, let's put people to work, right? Them anyway. They, okay, there, and there's other, again, so many things are connected to so many other things. Um at the same time as these driverless buses are coming on, which I, the buses and I think the trucks, trucking are going to be the ones we see most to begin with, because um, driverless semis make immense good sense for manufacturers who are paying a lot for drivers to get things across the country. And you know? I mean, I'll, it, but well, plus those guys are driving too long hours, so they're dangerous on the road. I mean, sure, sure, you know. But another piece of this whole thing are the driverless cars. And driverless cars are going to have a kind of an inverse effect in that it's predicted that uh, car ownership may drop by 90% uh, by 2035, I think, is what some of the numbers are looking like. Because if what you want is transportation, you don't necessarily need something parked in your yard for 95% of the time. Um, if you can call transportation when you need it, it'll take you where you need to go and drop you off. So that's the driverless Uber. The driverless Uber. Yeah. When that hits, we stop needing parking places because the driverless Uber drops you off and keeps going. Right. Right now we build six parking places for every car on the road. There's one at the mall and one at the at the grocery store and one at the church and one at the school and one at your office and all this kind of stuff. Is that why all you're an atheist parking... to bring it down to five? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that the parking places are going to be repurposed, which means that land in places like, say, the mall – might devalue quickly and be affordable to build apartments. So maybe we're going to start seeing more affordable housing in the city on all the parking spaces that we now have. Hmm. I mean, so, I mean, it's hard to... So that's like a positive. A positive, yeah. yeah. I mean, then people will be able to walk uh, to a lot of the things they need. Um, and that's part of the reason why we're working in the city here with what we call a form-based code. Not that the city is thinking about driverless, but um, old zoning 
post-World War II zoning put all the industry in one pocket and all the retail over here and all the residential over here and all the offices over there. Uh, and so everybody had to drive to right. do it. The idea of the form-based code is instead of telling you what you can do in a place, we tell you what it ought to look like based on what the neighborhood wants. So maybe you have a maximum four stories and you have retail at the ground level and offices and apartments upstairs and you begin to construct a city where people live near where they work and shop. So more and more they can walk to what they need to do. Hmm. Um, new urbanism is what they call it and the, the uh, ideal is that everyone should be within a quarter mile of everything they need. Mm. to make neighborhoods walkable. Now, as that begins to emerge, and it's, it's, it's a massive change in what, we've, what we have now, but we're doing it. It's gonna, the R River Arts District in Asheville is going to be based on a form-based code. Uh, Haywood Road in West Asheville had, now has a form-based code. We're, gonna, we're starting to, to push into this new way of doing things where people, where affordable living will be happening in the city. We're in a transition period here where the big money has pushed low, um, l cheap housing out of the city. But, I mean, I think 50 years from now, if we survive, uh, cities are going to look very, very different, and people will be riding less and walking more. So what comes to mind is Biltmore Park. Yeah. Biltmore Park feels to me like it was built according to the system that you're talking about. There's retail and the ground level everywhere and then it's condos mm -hmm. everywhere else right yeah I mean, it's, is it's that... a good start on that kind of a thing it's, yeah it, yeah of i course... mean there aren't enough apartments to support all that retail so Not, people yeah. are are coming in you know i i would bet most of the business comes in from right and parks but it's, <laughs> they have a lot of parking garages but there. it's the model yeah you know? it's the model and, yeah and um and with the driverless maybe the parking garage can be converted to in fact one of the things that is important and, and this is something I'm coming from, this is not my idea, this is from traffic engineers. It's important that new parking decks be built um, with level floors. There's two styles. One is where it's like a spiral going right. up and up and up. Well, if, if, if every floor is at an angle, it can't be repurposed. Right. But if you have a flat level and a ramp, a flat level Got and it, a yeah. ramp, it could be turned into housing, it could be turned into offices and that sort of thing. So the modern way of building decks is to do that. Um, mm. Make make a building that can be reused because you're you're building a building that will be there for seventy five years. Yeah, and there you have an embodied cost that when you don't need it for parking anymore, what do you do with it? If it's a skateboard park, if it's right. if it's angled all the way down, right, <laughs> right, 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 yeah. or a soapbox soapbox an derby, indoor, an indoor skateboard. <laughs> There's a lot. Suddenly, indoor skateboard parks are huge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and it's you know what we have to do is try our best to to look as far into the future as we reasonably can and hope that we make plans that are headed in the right direction and then are adaptable. We we because um, we can't know. I mean, I mean, who who among us in 1985 saw what cell phones would do? Right. Where, in fact, when the, the the computers that landed the on the moon w are less complicated than the cell phone in my pocket right now. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we <laughs> it's it is that has the, the the technology has changed everything, and at the same time, that technology is being being built by slave laborers in China. You know, well the uh, hard <laughs> the hard technology, but the yeah. app the things that make a cell phone so interesting are all the apps. That's right, and that is. 
being well, a fifteen okay, year it's old being in, conceived of. A fifteen year old in a basement is making this yeah. new app. Well, it's being conceived of by people in this yeah. sort of intelligentsia, but then it's being a lot of the hard work is being outsourced to India and Puerto Rico and places where they have cheap labor. Yeah. Um, I happen to know about Puerto Rico because at one point somebody I hired somebody to do some list building for me and they outsourced it to Puerto Rico. Right. Uh, yeah, I remember reading not not too far back that McDonald's was experimenting with, I don't know if it's been implemented, but when you spoke to the order machine. Oh, right. The person it, answering was, was taking order was in India. I don't yeah. think that lasted very long, but that was, that's true. That was happening for a while. <laughs> I know when you pull up, it's like the the person who says, hi, welcome to McDonald's. I'm the manager. Have you considered trying our... That's re recorded. Yeah. That's not a person saying that. Right. So, and I'm sure they, they had some calculation. They're like, well, that saves, you know, 10 seconds. And throughout right. the day, that saves, you know, four hours. And, and we've just saved $11 on every store and, you know, whatever, whatever right. the math is. And, um, I mean, all kinds of things. Medical transcription, you know, when doctors do their rounds in the hospital and record, they have a little microphone and they talk about the patient and everything. A lot of the transcription goes on outside the United States now. Um, right. Uh, and, of course, we all are familiar with when we call um, for some kind of product help. Uh, you know, we have a, a, a technical glitch on something and the person on the other end clearly has English as a second language. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, and even if you read the instructions in a lot of things, it looks like it's been translated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as, as in English as a second language, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's right. true. But, I mean, and and I don't, I don't, it's hard, obviously very hard. It's hard to know where Asheville is going in the next 10 or 15 years. It's impossible, I think, to guess how the global economy is going to evolve, uh, how... I mean, we're hitting population limits. I India certainly, the the food and all issue there is is and water is a tremendous issue. Yeah. China's hitting that kind of a thing. Africa is going through terrible doldrums right now. I mean, or, and that's that's not even the right word. Catastrophes, not doldrums. Yeah. Catastrophes with food, and um, yeah, I, I it, it's a worrisome thing. And in, in a lot of ways. Um, our reaction that does make some sense is, for instance, the local food movement, trying to engender local farming, trying to source things as close to here as possible, trying to divert vacant land, trying to prevent pavement of good farmland. Right. Because uh, pavement adds to global warming. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it warms the planet significantly as all this yeah. pavement, right? I mean, And trying to, um, uh, things like stormwater, trying to do stormwater retention in, in swales and ponds in, so it soaks into the ground instead of shooting it all down to the river. Hmm. Um, every time we, we pave, we roof, we didn't, and shoot the water off, we're reducing the absorption, which reduces the available water for the local greenery, which absorbs carbon. I mean, it's... Right, yeah. Yeah. It's, not, yeah. yeah. And one of the things, um, a, a sidebar thing that I've been working on, I've been the uh, liaison to the Tree Commission uh, the Asheville Tree Commission for seven years now, and we're struggling to find ways to protect trees in the city. Uh, in this state, um, we have there's no there. The law is very protective of private property. We can't prevent people from cutting trees. Hmm. Um, we can, when a person's doing a development, we can insist that they replace trees. So they cut down forty. 
uh, 200-year-old oak trees mm. and have to plant 40 saplings. Well, it's, it's not an equivalent. I mean, it's, right. <laughs> um, and, and we can't protect trees on, on uh, residential property. And we're trying to figure a way legally to at least encourage conservation because we're losing our tree canopy in the city quickly, which reduces carbon absorption, increases heating. You know, I mean, it right. increases energy costs. If you lose the shade over a house, for instance, a big tree that shades a house, um, more air conditioning, which means more coal, which, you know, I mean, it, it's connected, 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 connected. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it's, it's those kind of little changes that, that can add up over time. In fact, here, here's a, a wild one. I just read a story today in the current issue of the Atlantic Monthly about a guy in Siberia who is trying to save the planet. How he's trying to save the planet is, and he got this from his father who started it, but he's, um, one of the reasons that north, north lands, uh, subarctic, up toward the Arctic, um, are absorbing more heat is that there are many more trees up there now. So, uh, they're not real big trees, but there's a lot of trees have moved into what was grassland. Grassland at the Arctic, at the subarctic level reflects more heat into the in back to space, more sunlight, and gets colder in the winter, and therefore permafrost freezes harder. So he's using a major, major like a tank to bulldoze trees in the in this area to let grass grow. He's importing bison from the United States because bison are one of the controlling factors to preserve grassland. They eat the grass and return the manure, which grows more grass, but they also chew down anything like a tree. And he's working with a geneticist who's trying to re-engineer mammoths. They're doing a, a genetic manipulation with in Asian elephants. They think they're within a few years of being able to produce mammoths. Wow. Mammoths were a, a key ecological piece in keeping the tree cover down in the far north which kept the north colder isn't that wild i mean he's, so he's, why do we want the north to be warmer i don't be get colder that. we want it to be colder yeah, so we want to trees. freeze more so we don't want trees we want grass and to get rid of the trees because oh, the trees keep the trees uh, absorb more heat because they're darker right and and they don't reflect as much heat back and they prevent the frost from getting as as cold Grasslands freeze deeper. Okay. Then, and so I mean, this is his mass. He's he intends his goal is to reintroduce mammoths around the world in those Arctic places, Alaska, Canada, Siberia, and help chill the planet with the use of mammoths. Wow. <laughs> is that far? <laughs> I think far. I followed you. <laughs> like it's, that's how I feel. It's like, it's wild. I mean, yeah. it's just a guy who's thinking that far out. He says, "Give me a hundred mammoths, and I will change the planet." Wow, the hundredth mammoth. The hundredth so mammoth. <laughs> monkey. Right, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the hundredth mammoth will type Shakespeare. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. That is so cool. Well, this has been amazing, man. Thank you so much. It's been a delightful conversation. Yeah, Thank I'm you like, for inviting me. Yeah, no, I want, and I think I'm going to bring you back for a part two at some point. Like, I okay. really feel like we've just started 
and this is what happens. Like I always say, like the first hour is about something and the second hour becomes something. Yeah. And that's why I like to do these for a couple hours. My mom's like, they're too long. I'm like, try listening to them. They get interesting. They like, they go in, you know? Right. And, and I feel like there's a lot of stuff we have yet to, to get into. And I, oh, and I certainly so, you know, and so, um, and I want to do that and we'll just do it another time because sure. no one will be listening in four hours. That's for sure. No. Uh, but, um, yeah, I just, I really, I mean, I, I personally really enjoy this. I think you're, you've got so much interesting knowledge and just ideas. I keep thinking like, I guess they're not all your ideas, but no, you, you make it up. seem like they are not in a way like you're stealing them, but you, you just have a mastery of understanding of these things that make it seem like you really get it. Like, and this is the thing that I clued into the other night when you were talking at Jeff Messer's live radio show talk show event whatever you know as i was listening to you talk and i was like this guy's really he makes sense like every the dots all connect they do you know and and that's that's probably the most important thing for my personally that i feel like i've learned in my life is that um the dots definitely connect the one of the one of the lessons i learned way back was that the the who was it from uh, aldo leopold who wrote the uh, sand county almanac said the most important part of intelligent tinkering is to not throw anything away mm. you, you keep the parts because they all fit and and so as i've as I've explored, I, I, I read widely. I listen carefully. If I, when I, I try to listen carefully, although I maybe talk too much, but the, 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 the pieces all fit and, and making the fit work better is how we can solve the macro problems that we face. I mean, and, and we, but we have to be conscious that you can't do one thing. You, you can't, um, you can't just cut down the trees because they're in the way and think that it's not going to have an effect that ripples out across the, the world, for that matter. Well, that's what I mean. So that's where I went when you said this guy is going to cut down the trees in the Arctic and introduce the mammoths and bring the grasslands back. Like, I see that there's isolated benefits to that. Right. And maybe those isolated benefits have far-reaching right. results. But there's got to be... There's gonna be some kind of thing that we haven't figured out yet. There's gonna, oh, there's, yeah. gonna there's gonna be a, <laughs> an un maybe undesirable, certainly unintended side effect that's gonna come from that. Sure. That and that's why it makes such a far out uh, approach. I mean, right? They're likely to be. His argument would be that uh, grass took a very long time ecologically to emerge. Grass is a very different plant from all the other plants on the planet um, because most plants grow up and if they're cut off like a tree they die hmm. grass if it's cut off keeps growing from the roots that's hmm. why it keeps coming back and coming back and coming back and once grass got a foothold on dry land it came up out of the oceans suddenly herbivores emerged that that hmm. ate that grass when the herbivores emerged and created a, a large meat source humans jumped out of the trees and started hunting them and it was a critical piece of our emergence from the trees that grass had emerged to feed us and the world's population has been largely fed by grass it still is by oats wheat uh, corn rice all grasses 
and the herbivores that we eat secondarily are all grass eaters. And that re restoring grassland is like restoring our primeval source. I mean, he's, he's, he's a, got a philosophy about this beyond right. just knocking over the larches in the site in Siberia <laughs> <laughs> and growing mammoths and growing mammoths. I love that. I like the hundredth mammoth syndrome. I think we've got something there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, listen, let's do it sooner than later. Okay. Um, thank you so much for coming over this late on a Tuesday night. I mean, that's really generous of you and I really appreciate it. And I'm just thrilled we could do it. I, Me I think too. I, I was more more than willing, uh, thrilled to be invited to do this. Uh, awesome. Again, because of what I felt from you that night at Jeff Messer's show. If this is the only good thing that comes out of that show, it's it was a total success. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of good things are going to come out of that so. show. I think so. I think Jeff is, um, I didn't realize what a powerful dude he is. Yeah. But he's a, you know, he's really smart super freaking smart yep and and the thing is he doesn't play smart on his show he really allows his guests to shine yep. and but he does steer the conversation in brilliantly a, in really good ways yeah really yeah. no exactly yeah. that's what i mean like his yeah. genius is hidden yeah you know hidden in plain view because he's the reason that it's that it all works and uh i could probably stand to learn a thing or two from him you know be a little less a little more guided a little more quietly <laughs> um I still have my experiences I want people to hear about. My mom's oh, always like, I, I love talking about my mom. I, I have such a fun relationship with her right now. And and she, her, she really loves this podcast. First of all, because she gets to hear about pieces of my life that I don't tell her about because she's my mom. Sure. Right. You know, so she knows who I'm dating and whether, you know, she knows all these things about me that she, that I don't bother to tell her. Of course. Yeah. And so she loves it. But she said, you know, you just, you talk about yourself a little too much, you know, I'm like, well, this is, but I'm the... I'm the personality behind this thing, you know. <laughs> Part of the podcasting thing is kind of developing a relationship with the host of the podcast. Like you Right. That it, it's a different thing. It's not I'm not Terry Gross who just brings in guest after guest and interviews them about them. I mean, it is a right, right. very it's a much more subjective uh information sharing format. So, I try to get her to understand that and also try to take her advice to heart. Like, let your guests talk a little bit, you know? Right. Like, so. <laughs> yeah, mom knows. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, so annoying how much she knows. Yeah. So. Well, All right, cool. Well, again, thank you, and um, we'll do it again soon. Cecil blew my mind when we talked. Not only is he one of the smartest people I've talked to in a long time, but he's one of the most promising and progressive. I wish all our leaders thought as deeply and spoke as eloquently as Cecil. If you like what you heard, please visit our website, use our Amazon portal, and rate us on iTunes. Make sure you tell your friends about Learning to Fail, and if you feel so inclined, please consider making a donation on our donation page. That way, we can keep failing like fossil fuels. <laughs>